Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. It is Tuesday morning, August the 2nd, 843-661-0937. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. Everything settled this morning? I know yesterday morning you were running about scurrying about trying to get everything back as as it needs to be. Yeah, We, we, we kind of check out on the weekend. Um, but the radio stations don't check out. <laughs> they play all weekend. I mean, in, in the truck body manufacturing business, when I put a lock on the door at 5 o'clock Friday afternoon, I mean, it was done with until 7 o'clock the following Monday morning. I mean, unless we had some things going on and business dictated that we work on the weekends, radio stations are different than that. Uh, the radio station plays uh, Saturday, Sunday, uh, 3 o'clock Thursday morning, yep. you know, 9 o'clock Friday night. I mean, this station. Christmas, New Year's. Yeah, Christmas, New Year's. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're, um, they're dependent upon to provide adequate entertainment uh, and enlightenment in the case of Wake Up Carolina. Oh, right? yeah. Not just entertainment, Especially this week. but enlightenment as well. I want to correct something I said yesterday uh, when I said I didn't like the way it sounded when I said I was declaring divorce of Bruce Springsteen. Um, I ain't involved in a same-sex marriage by any stretch of the imagination, so I want to make it clear that that's not my intent. Never I, I, I didn't take it that my way. Intent. Well, I mean, I did. I thought about it yesterday. I ain't divorcing another dude. You know, I'm not divorcing my wife unless I get a big surprise here uh, sooner than later, But um, and I hope to not get that. But, um, but I'm certainly not. I mean, being the conservative Southern Republican I am, Freehold, you know how Southerners are about some of the traditional churchy values of American society and culture. And as confusing as some things are these days. Yeah, very confusing. Well, it's that northern aggressive attitude, you know, that that is uh, infiltrated. What are you saying, Freehold? Why are you always trying to drum up some conflict with me? (laughs) It's called entertainment. It's called entertainment. And welcome to the South. (laughs) Welcome to the South. There you go. We, um... You know, we know what you folks think of us, yeah. uh, that, that y'all and ain't. Uh, we know you deduct about 20 IQ points every time we say y'all and ain't. We know that you believe, not you personally, but, but you northern aggressors believe if we could only get rid of this southernism in America, we could all get to a to a better place. Um, uh, yeah, he doesn't buy that. <laughs> and I, I don't think he buys that. If he does, Rev, then it'll make the show even more interesting. <laughs> uh, but the reason I drag you into some of these conversations is I think it's very interesting to hear what a native northerner thinks about some of these um, southern isms that I throw out there from time to time. But I want to make clear. Uh, so if you're my, not divorcing, does that mean we have to play his music no, again? No, 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 gonna, no, 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 okay. no, 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 no. This mean? is a more serious charge. Uh, fraud. Uh, I mean, okay. I, think, I think Bruce is frauding okay. people on the order of Enron. I mean, in other words, it's not Bruce the Ball Springsteen anymore. For me, it's Bruce Enron Springsteen. I mean, his new nickname is Enron because he is just completely and totally proven to be not who he says he was. Remember the Enron scandal? Sure. I mean, we're making money. We're selling energy futures. Uh, we're buying up assets all over the country. We weren't doing any of that. I mean, the books were cooked and some female accountant, leave it to a troublemaking woman, uh, kind of plundered through and became a whistleblower, went to Congress and said, hey, these folks that have named the, uh, remember the Houston Astros ball field was named Enron Field. Uh, they took the sign down. They never made any money. They never made any money. Um, they, def- you know, defrauded the American public. Um, Jeffrey Skilling and a couple of others went to jail, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, for, for a, an extended period of time, and they should have. I mean, a fraud at that level. I'm not asking for Bruce to be incarcerated. I mean, I think he's within his rights to um, fraud the American public. But, but in, in all honesty, for someone who has never been involved in a in a same-sex relationship or a marriage, <laughs> it's hard for me to 
ask for a divorce. So I, I want to make that clear. Okay. I'm not. I, I am exploring my, my my opportunities. I mean, I really am. I'm spending the balance of this week talking to high-powered lawyers from all over the country, including the great Northeast, some of the New York and Philadelphia. What's the old saying? A Philadelphia lawyer? Yeah, I'm looking for a Philadelphia lawyer that will take on the case, but it will not be a divorce case because I don't have any interest in being involved in the same-sex marriage. Mm-hmm. But it is a fraud case on the level of Enron. So we may uh, broadcast live and in living color Friday morning at the appropriate time, um, the fraud case uh, that that I have filed in, plans going in Circuit forward, Court seven zero seven nine five Y, Bruce Enron Springsteen versus um, yours truly, and um, yeah, it, it'll be an official filing. We'll have a hearing. I'm trying my best to find. I mean, I had a divorce lawyer, but I called him yesterday and said, "Look, man, I don't need your services any longer." Um, he said, well, I've already worked on it, but I got billable hours. I said, of course you do. You're a lawyer. Of course you've already got billable hours involved. Um, but I'm looking for a real good lawyer with a specialty in business fraud, uh, relationship fraud. Um, Maybe he'll offer you some sort of settlement to make you go away. Well, I mean, kind, of a, kind of a nuisance and, and, payment. And I'd probably go away. I mean, I sure. probably would. I'd probably take the settlement and uh, and go away. It has really surprised me, though, that this apparently, and according to you, I mean, you think this has done some damage to his well, I mean, you legacy. Tell me. You, you tell me. I mean, you're not a Springsteen fan. Well, and you that's why take him or leave him. Well, and that's why it's a little harder for me to even be surprised uh, because I'm I'm not a fan, so I'm looking at it from the outside, and I'm thinking, well, if I was a fan, you know, I'd probably just you know forgive and move on, and things would get back to normal at some point. But uh, and I know that all this is very new as far as this is just happening in the last few weeks with these concert prices. But I saw a post on social media, I guess it was last night, and he went to some bar over the weekend, and there was a picture of him going into the bar and a little headline with it or whatever. But I said, man, there's 690-something comments on this. I'm going to read a couple of these. And I clicked on it, and they were just raking him over the coals. I mean, fraud, you know, I can't believe you've done this. You know, you you, you know, you fooled me. You know, I And mean, it's not 50-50. No. I mean, it's 10 to 1. Right. I mean, for every one complimentary can, uh, comment, there are 10 negative comments. I hope you got enough money now, Bruce. You know, so you've it's kind seen of the, some of that? Oh, I've seen it over yeah. and over and over again. Everywhere there's an article, the people share these stories with me because they know I'm a big Springsteen fan. Stop with that. <laughs> I mean, st- you can't do that. Yeah, he's that, out. That's he's unfair. Out. Yep. I mean, that, that is absolutely unfair. <laughs> fair um yeah you can't do that i mean i i I can't i'm not ready emotionally right now to listen to born to run i'm just not i mean i could probably listen to born of the usa i could probably listen to dancing in the dark uh there's a kind of toony anyway but don't just cut my heart out i mean don't don't born to run and And, and whatever you don't play thunder road yeah don't play thunder road or born to run i don't want to cry on the radio um severing a relationship and and feeling um uh, as fraudulent as i Okay, see, I can deal with that. Yeah. that, that that's cute. I mean, that, that, that's the one that <laughs> that's sold what he was selling of, out. Yeah, right? that's what he was selling out, making money. That, see, we should have known then. We should have known then when he wrote that song that he was uh, destined to be a sellout at some. <laughs> and so he even admits that. I did go back and um and watch Springsteen on Broadway Saturday night. I got my my iPad. I went to Netflix. Oh, really? I, I wanted to make sure I had it right, and I didn't have it right. Um, I said that when he began the Springsteen on Broadway um show, he says. That I grew up in a boardwalk town. Uh, I've never been there. Freehold has. I mean, it's a boardwalk town. It's on the Jersey Shore, talking about Asbury Park. And he says, um, I grew up in a boardwalk town where everything is tinged with a bit of fraud. And then he kind of makes a motion like, uh, he says, I made it all up. But he says, I always uh, repeated 
that he said wildly and insanely successful. He actually says wildly and absurdly successful, writing and singing about things of which I know absolutely nothing about. Mm. I made it all up. So he's come clean in some way, shape, or form uh, to we the people. Um, I guess he was preparing us for dynamic pricing then. Maybe I think so. maybe then he'd already known that uh, eventually we're going to back, go back on the road. We're going to do this dynamic pricing. Uh, but anyway, um, not divorce from a same-sex marriage, but rather fraud. So um, tune in Friday morning, and you may hear a legal proceeding. I mean, we may cut in. Uh, it'll be C-SPAN-like, you know, <laughs> cutting into the Senate in session or the House in session. Um I want to go back to something we touched on yesterday. I drove over this morning, listening to some of the, uh, what is it, Red Eye Radio, the two guys on Red Eye Radio who do the all-night show sponsored by truckers and, Mm -hmm. you know, those who work factory jobs at night. Imagine that, Springsteen. There are people who work in factories on the night shift, and they need to be kind of kept company, so to speak, and overnight radio historically has done some of this. Um, And they're talking about what you would expect them to talk about, you know, the killing of an al-Qaeda leader and the elections in Arizona and Missouri and Trump's involvement in this. And I thought about Bongino yesterday. I'm telling you, Bongino's on this. I mean, he was there again yesterday. He didn't call it the cathedral. Right. And he didn't say, you know, um, the Arizona election to Blake Masters and uh, it kind of lines up with Hawley and Vance and some of these other um, America first. um, But he doesn't say cathedral. He says some of these um, conspiracy theory candidates. You know, and, and he kind of goes down the road and you keep waiting on him to say, you know, this, um, you keep waiting on him to say something like, um, Curtis Yarvin or, um, Mitch's Moonbog. Uh, these are folks who use names. I found out yesterday, uh, I called Rev late yesterday afternoon in a tizzy and, um, uh, I got in touch yesterday with someone in the orbit of which I've never been a part of. I mean, I've heard about it. I've tried to understand it. Um, it's dawned upon me um, seven or eight years ago, we made a prediction on the on the radio that eventually um, the political debate that defines my generation uh, will not be conservative liberal. It'll be insiders, outsiders. It'll be the establishment, you know, against those who, I don't know, the ragtag army of, I didn't say Trump supporters because obviously I didn't think it would be Donald Trump to come along there. But actually, um, I talked to a friend of mine who listens to the show uh, on the app and he said, I got somebody I want you to speak with. And we spoke yesterday for over an hour. And he's one of them. <laughs> I mean, he's, he's one of them. I mean, he's one of these guys that, that, that live in this alt-right world, that, this new right. I mean, either he refers to themselves or they refer to themselves as the new right. It's not the alt-right. Alt-right has this negative connotation. But, but it's so interesting, Rev, and it's so far down the road, and it's far more formulated and organized than you would or I would ever imagine. You came in this morning, said something about my head's kind of swimming, man. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know what to make of all these. It's not accusations I'm not making. It's not charges I'm leveling. It's a conversation I'm trying to have with a universe of people. You feel a certain way. I'm not speaking to every one of my listeners, but you feel a certain way about American politics. And and I think the the general feel and sense the majority of us have is I don't trust, but I don't know who to blame. I mean, I don't trust these institutions, but I really don't know who to blame for my my lack of trust in these institutions. And I had a conversation yesterday with someone who was part of the um, the architecture in, in designing the political revolution that I think is headed our way. And it's not fringy. It's not conspiracy theorist. 
I mean, it, it is genuine. It's real. It's well thought out. In, in other words, Rev, I'll say this, and we'll take our first break. I think this political movement today, as unknown as it is, as unaware as the general public are, is far more well thought out than the Republican Party or the Democrat Party. It's not mainstream yet. I mean, I think it gets there. I mean, it's still a little bit in the corner. It's over there. It's scary. I mean, it's, it's, it's sketchy. It's radical. It's fringy. You better be careful with those people, man. You know who those guys are. Um, well, I, I, I think I'm beginning to sense who they are. And they're not crazy by any stretch of the imagination. Um, they have a kind of a similar mindset. Um, they're normally male. They're normally intelligent. They're normally outcast, a little bit outcasted of society. Um, they don't have the same interest that the majority of us have. In other words, by that I mean, um, I guess that does make them to some degree a bit outcasty, so to speak. But I made notes during the call yesterday. Called Rev yesterday afternoon and said, "Hey man, you're not going to believe. I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to tell you referred me to him. I'm not going to tell you who he is, but he's someone in that universe that I'm trying to better understand." That I basically, and here's why I have such an interest in it, I know what I believe. I don't know the foundational principles, and I don't know even if it's a philosophy. I mean, I don't know that what I believe best for American government qualifies as a philosophy. I mean, limited government is a philosophy, right? Liberalism is a philosophy. It's an ideology. I'm not sure the way I feel today, this morning, would, would, would suit being described as a philosophy or an ideology. It's a raw emotion. It's an energy I have. It's a compulse that I feel so, um, I don't know, married to, wed to, and, and, and want to be a part of making sure this happens the way I wanted to make, uh, make it happen. And, I, and I'm beginning to have a little clarity here. I'm beginning to have an understanding here. And I'm telling you guys, a lot of you feel like I do. You don't know exactly how I feel. I don't know exactly how you feel. But we have these similar feelings of distrust. And, and, and we believe that I can't tell people I feel that way because it'll be weird. Yeah, and I can't tell people that I'm kind of proud that some of the government agencies are losing trust. I mean, a patriotic American should, should basically weep or be worried when, when, when the FBI loses trust of the American people. When the church... Uh, the institutions are in decline. And, and I'll say this, and then we'll come back. We'll take our break, come back. But I'll say this. Um, in politics, you wonder what the metric of success is. Winning elections, right? I mean, they, you know, we're having elections in Arizona today, Missouri today. That's the two I'm paying close attention to. Roy Blunt's retiring in Missouri, and we've got a chance to elect one of these guys. And he's going to be probably the only candidate in Missouri that could lose. I mean, I'm not saying Eric Greitens could lose. I mean, he is going to lose, but he could. Eric Schmidt will not lose, period. But Eric Greitens won more one of these guys than Eric Schmidt is. Now, now Till endorsed Schmidt, and Till's paying for all this. I mean, I'm convinced. Now, nobody told me this. I'm not seeing a reconciliation or a bank statement. I mean, I didn't get the um, Peter Till didn't send the, the Family Foundation's ballot sheet over to me um, last night. Um, but, but there's no question in my mind that Teal is the bankroller. I mean, he's the, um, ah, he's the sugar daddy <laughs> of all this going on in American politics today. And I think he's willing to spend every penny he's got. I mean, I really believe he's got about $10 billion. He's got about 5 billion with no strings attached. That's a lot of money. 
mean, that's $5,000 million. I mean, you can do a lot in the political world with $5,000 million. Are they one of us or not? I mean, that's really the, the central question. Are they, in, are they on Jupiter and we're on uh, Mars? Uh, what do we have in common with these people? Um, and who are these people? I think that's such an interesting question. And which came first? This is my question. I'm, as I'm trying to soak in what you're saying, again, my head is spinning. But is it the, you know, the people and the feelings that they are tapping into? Or is there something else going on where, you know, we're being pointed in the right direction. When I say we, I mean us, the just the regular voter that feels like we Hold feel. that thought. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. We can talk about what everybody else is talking about and an Al-Qaeda leader being killed. We can talk about what everybody else is talking about, inflation and recession, what the definition of recession is. I mean, I, I'm of the opinion, and I want I want some help here. I mean, I, I'd really genuinely need um, your guidance and assistance here, Rev, and all of our listeners. Is this a conversation that we're interested in having? Because this is not a conversation that most people are having. I'll give you a couple of notes here from my conversation yesterday. And once again, um, we kind of went down that road uh, a good bit yesterday. Um, I don't touch. I don't think we touched the surface. I mean, as lo- as much as we talked about it, I think there's so much more here uh, to talk about. Um, notes that I took away from my hour long phone call with one of these um, one of these dark enlighteners. There you go. That's what <laughs> we'll call them. One of these dark enlighteners. And I mean, th- this guy was no phony. I mean, he was a real dark enlightener. And began expressing himself in a way that kind of light came on here and a light came on there. Aha. Okay. I get it now. Um, the majority of the energy, and if you really think about fundamentally, where, where are we? What, what are we talking about here? Um, these people uh, who are leading the Trump phenomenon in the intellectual way. I'm talking about the intellectual underpinning. I'm not talking about uh, a room full of activists, you know, wearing red baseball caps. I'm not talking about that. That's pretty easy to understand. The frustration, the anxiety, the anger, uh, the contempt that people have for the government. I mean, that's easy to understand. America first is what? It's kind of a countercultural political movement. Throw the bombs out. Make America great again. Um, drain the swamp. The game is rigged. I mean, that, those are fairly understandable. I mean, that, that's not an intellectual argument, right? I mean, you, you can. I mean, we can all agree there. You know, when twenty thousand people show up at a football stadium in support of Donald Trump running for president, I mean, that's not a complicated political um, dynamic. I mean, that's fairly easy to understand. These people are mad as hell and aren't going to take it anymore. I mean, that's kind of the nature of the Trump campaign. He resonated with the universe of people. Um, they don't know. I mean, the majority of these people don't know um, about NAFTA or GAD or TPP or China becoming uh, legitimized as a member of the World Trade Organization in 2001. All they know is their hometown dried up and blew away and their livelihoods walked away. The, the plant that employed 800 people is all of a sudden in Malaysia. Uh, the business that employed 350 or 1,000 people is all of a sudden in China. Uh, they don't. They don't know the backstory of the World Trade Organization or, or trade policies or free trade or or where the Republican Party stands in regards to that. But what these people believe is that I mean, you know, when you talk about the dark enlighteners, let's call them. Let's refer to these people as the dark enlighteners. I mean, that's kind of the phrase they've coined themselves. And I'm talking about some of these um 
some of these shadowy figures on the internet, uh, the Curtis Yarvins of the world. Um, ah, there, there's another guy, Vance. I mean, uh, Lance, another uh, last name, Lance. Anyway, there's about 10 or 20 uh, opinion leaders that, that are on the web. But here's what they believe in, Reb, and it's not elitism. Here's what dawned on me. They believe in elitism more than Washington does. But they genuinely believe that, that elites need to run the country. We need to have elitism. It needs to be prevalent. Um, they question why they're dumb, uh, why dumb, lazy uh, people who don't want to pull their weight are allowed to vote anyway. I mean, they, they're really, I mean, you talk, we go down this wow. libertarian road, no question about it. Wow. I mean, those, those were his words. Why would, in a democracy, here's the danger of a democracy, so they say. In a democracy, uh, a dumb, uh, lazy person's vote counts just as much as somebody who gets up every morning and diligently prepares and tries to make a better way of life. I mean, that's the, kind of the weight of a democracy. But they believe in elitism. I mean, absolutely. You know what the word, I mean, I went back and looked last night. The definition of elite, and this is um the Webster definition, a select group that is superior in terms of ability or qualities to the rest of a group of society. Let me say that again. A select group that is superior, superior in terms of ability or qualities to the rest of a group or society. They believe that the people who are superior need to be making the, the decisions on behalf of the country. We need elites governing the nation. We need elites in the military. We need elites in business. Uh, elites need to be, uh, I wrote a sentence down that he told me, um, who would you rather be in charge of the ship, the captain or the sailor? But then you've got to ask a question, why is he the captain? Is it because his granddaddy bought the boat? And his, and his daddy was a lesser captain than the granddaddy. The granddaddy was probably an elite. He probably deserved to be captain. The grandson or great-grandson may or may not deserve to be captain, and that's the argument they're making, that government today is run by, quote-unquote, so-called elites, but when the proper terminology, they're nothing but establishment. I mean, they've taken advantage of the transaction, transactional nature of American government, and they've made a mess of everything they've touched. Why? Because they're just not very good at it. So, so when we say they're anti-elitism, no, therefore elitism more than Washington is. They believe in, I mean, we said it yesterday, what did they, what they refer to with this kind of a natural aristocracy? Let the smartest and brightest and most competent and capable be in charge, and we'll probably have a better run country. Why? Because it's run by competent, smart, capable people. So, so let's get that straight. This is not an anti-elitist movement. It is very much an anti-establishment movement. But how many times have we said the elite establishment? It's not an elite establishment. If there were an elite establishment, we wouldn't be 30 trillion in debt. If there were an elite establishment, we wouldn't have a monolithic education system. If it was an elite establishment, we wouldn't spend more on health care than anybody in the world. It, it's, it's, a bunch of, um, it's a bunch of moochers. I mean, that's what our government has turned into. It's morphed into a cadre of moochers who at some point in time had a connection to somebody who was genuinely elite. There's no doubt that Adams was elite. There's no doubt that Jefferson was elite. There's no doubt that Franklin was elite. I mean, our government at one point in time had elite leadership. These people were smarter than the general population. They were more competent than the general population. They thought things through. They made really good conscientious decision based on what is best for the country. They could get there. So when we say this is an anti-elite movement, wrong. This is as pro-elite movement as anybody ever could be. In fact, they'll go so far as to say, give me the government we've got today or a monarch. 
I may take the monarch. I didn't say I would, but the majority of these dark enlighteners, you giving them the option today that they could install a monarchy instead of the government we have today, they believe we're better off with a monarchy. Let's go to the phone. Dale in Florence. Good morning, Dale. Good morning, guys. All right. So, so throughout history, by and large, it was always the biggest and the strongest that ruled until fairly recently in, in historical terms. It was always the biggest and the strongest that ruled. And, and, and throughout history, we found out that wasn't always the best way. I, I guess my fear is just because you may have an IQ greater than mine, that don't mean that I'm going to agree with the way that you think, your decision-making process. And I, I, personally, I'm an electrician. Now, if you have a guy with a really high IQ that's never studied electricity, who do you want working on your uh, on your house? The guy that may be not quite as smart but been doing it for 20 years? Or the guy that's really smart and has never touched it? I just, you know, it, it, it's smarter and brighter better than bigger and stronger. That's my question. You guys have a good day. Thank you, Dale. That's an interesting point. Let me ask you this. If you had 10 decisions to be made about how we govern ourselves, do you want somebody with a 90 IQ or 120 IQ making those 10 decisions? I'm not saying he gets all 10 of those straight and right. I'm, I'm certainly not. I'm not insinuating that it's all about IQ. I mean, they put a lot of stock in IQ. They make no bones about it. They believe the smarter a person is, the more likely they are to make the right decision. So if you give someone a chance to make 100 decisions about where the, where the country's government goes, you know, what sort of policy do we pass? What sort of government do we serve under? Um, give a guy with a give a or a lady. I mean, you know, they're a little bit anti-feminist. I mean, I, I'll be honest with you. I mean, I, as I hmm. as I further explore, um, yeah, they, they, they've they've got a a strong opinion that the two sexes. I mean, they're not to the point that women don't belong in the boardroom. They don't say that at all. They just accept that the the men and women are are wired uniquely different. And here's where they land. Be careful here. You ready? Here's where they land. Women are really emotional people. And you can't let emotions dictate the decisions you make of how to govern a country. I mean, that's where they land. Is that wrong? I mean, are women more emotional than men? I mean, I think history shows us. Sure they are. I mean, women are more emotionally affected by when things go a certain way or don't go a certain way. But I want to go back to Dale's point. Once again, this is their opinion, not mine. They believe that if there are 30 decisions to be made about how, we go, how we're going to govern ourselves, I'd rather have somebody smart making those 30 decisions than somebody I question their intellect or not. So once again, um, what does elitism mean? Elitism or the word elite means a select group that is superior, superior in terms of ability or qualities. Quality being, am I smarter? Am I more able to make those decisions? Um, I would rather have the smart person making 30 decisions than the person I question whether they're smart enough or not. Let's go to the phone. Here's Mike in Darlington. Good morning, Mike. You're on the air. Uh, good morning. I, I think you're overlooking some things there. Uh, there's also the morally elite, and you've got to have some sort of moral guidelines to direct that intelligence, or it's extremely dangerous. I mean, Karl Marx was an extremely bright man. 
but uh, he was also uh, came up with one of the most evil and uh, evil systems that anyone's ever come up with, and that's uh, that's just a fact. So, given the choice between just picking people randomly out of the uh, phone book, as William F. Buckley said. Or just uh, or the group of people we got right now, I would say, yeah, <laughs> you know, uh, they may not be of the IQ, but uh, these guys hate the country, and that is that that's a problem. That's a problem. When you but say you these guys, careful. Mike, when you say these guys hate the country, who are these guys? The ones that are running the country right now, the our cabinet. Uh, Do they hate? The, let me interrupt you. Do they hate the country? Or have they advantaged themselves at the expense of making good decisions for us? In other words, when they've got uh, a decision well, to make, both. and, it, well, and it's, well, well, it, both, but I, I think they genuinely despise this country and despise ordinary working people. You I, think Mitt I, Romney I despises think, America? Yeah. See, I don't. I mean, I think Romney. I think Romney's an establishment yeah. guy, but I think Romney genuinely loves America. But but I think he's gotten I, himself down the road of. This misalignment I talk a lot about, and I think the proper alignment is when I make a vote, the vote is good for the American people. And I think the majority of these people have gotten themselves in a place where when I make this vote on behalf of my moneyed interest, my donor class, it's not good for the Americans. And I don't know how to square that up. I don't think that's a hatred for America. Well, I I think uh, Mitt's father was a, a, a true patriot. I don't think uh, Mitt is at all. But uh, that's 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 my opinion. Sure. But, but uh, one thing I wanted to make a point is like all of this stuff that's going on now, uh, killing the ter- terrorists and whether Pelosi's going to land on one side of uh, Taipei or the other. That's uh, I I think that's all a smoke screen. I I think it's just something to get attention and uh, say uh, look at this shiny thing over here about to happen. Because uh, it's got to be perfectly safe for her to fly in there from any angle because uh, uh, Biden thinks it's the wrong thing to do. And if I've ever seen anybody be wrong all the time, if you pick what he didn't want to do, you'll probably uh, pick the right thing to do. That's that's just my opinion. But, but th- um, Thank you, Mike. Appreciate that. we got to take a break here. Uh, we'll come back once again. Um, how far down the road do we want to go? Um, I'm ready to go a long way down this road. I mean, I'm, I'm as interested in this as I, I mean, I thought I had a keen interest you, in the you Fed. Better tell us what the road is well, and I mean, where it's going. I, I think we're trying to learn it together. I mean, you know, I think we'll have some disagreements along the way. Um, at the, the center of this, at the center of the philosophy, if it's got a philosophy, here's what they believe. I mean, this his words, not mine. You ready? Um, the average person doesn't want to be free. They merely want to be safe. And if government can convince you that I can keep you safe, you'll give up as much freedom. I mean, it's not its not all at once. It's incremental. It's methodical. It's one inch at a time. And the next thing you know, we got people who feel safe and secure and protected by the government. But look at the liberties and freedoms they've given up. And these guys are kind of libertarians. I mean, they're they're, they're radical libertarians. I mean, they're all about freedoms and liberties, a little bit like our founding fathers, but they have surmised that given them, if you give the average American a, a choice between being free or being secure, whether it's consciously or subconsciously, they, they'd rather be secure, safe. I'll give up that freedom. You can have my money, 
You can tell me what to do. Just just make me feel like I'm safe and secure. Take a break. Back in just a minute. So you know you're dealing with the dark enlightenment when you celebrate a new poll that shows an, an increasing declining trust in public institutions. I mean, that, that is their marker. That is their metric. That is their measure. They believe that they're more likely to, to succeed the less you trust institutions. And they even believe the PGA, the NCAA, I mean, they believe cr- crumbling trust in institutions of authority proves that, they're, that they have a better chance to be successful in the long run, and, and that's their number. I mean, when they see the trust in government number, that's kind of the favorability number if you're running for president. Let's go to the phone. Larry in the PD. Good morning, Larry. Good morning. <clears throat> so, first of all, I will be the first to admit that these guys on a lot of issues are singing my tune. Um, the, the big problem that I have, and if you want to sum it up, it's really objectivism kind of warmed back over. It's a lot of Ayn Rand's ideas about, you know, the value that you contribute, what you are, you know, adding to society. And, you know, you can do it one of two ways. You can do it with your brain or you can do it with your back. But everyone is required to contribute. Um, The thing that I take exception with them on is when they say most Americans, given the choice, would choose, you know, slavery for safety, so to speak. They've been convinced, Americans have been convinced from a nonstop, nonstop propaganda campaign that that's what they are supposed to want. It wasn't like that 50 years ago. The average American would have rather taken freedom over safety. We would have thrown the building departments out. We would have thrown the codes departments out. We would have thrown the EPA out. We would have thrown DHEC out. Now, people won't go into a building if it doesn't have an A on the window. They've been conditioned to that. It's not because of IQ. It's conditioning works on all human beings, even the brightest. There are some people with a certain bent gene, as you like to call it, that will not accept any conditioning, but they're not always elite. Sometimes they're just rebellious. But this group of people is right that we've got to return to a merit-based system. All institutions crumble eventually. It's just like the light bulbs in your house. When you build a brand new house, you put all the light bulbs in at the same time. Well, guess what's going to happen? They're all going to go out at about the same time. And people don't think about that, you know. You don't usually change one light bulb a year. You usually go, golly, I've changed every light bulb in this house this year. And as these institutions that were built two or 300 years ago begin to ossify at the top because they've been replaced, the merit-based people have been replaced with tradition-based people, and they haven't earned their way there. And I'll give you a great example of that. If you want to go intern at Congress... How much do you get paid? Nothing. So who can afford to go live in Washington, D.C. and get paid nothing? The children of rich people. That's how they get their start. Mom and Daddy put them up in a $5,000 a month apartment so that they can go ingratiate themselves to the people that make the decisions and the appointments in Congress. That's why they all come from Stanford and Harvard and all these things that Mom and Dad can afford to send them. None of those, none of those uh, uh, places take state grants and state student loans. and all that. Those are all private institutions. So they've created a calcified system at the top that reinforces it for their children. 
who have not earned it. And they think that they pass on some special genetic ability. That elitism is a quality, not an ability. The quality is, I, my last name is this, my dad accomplished that, my grandfather you know, invented this. And that's what we've got. And they're right about that. And it should crumble, and it needs to crumble. But the institution isn't the problem. It's the inhabitants of the institution. It's not the, it's not the frame. It's not the foundation. It's the tenants that are the problem. And they want to throw out the building instead of throwing out the tenants. And that is the only issue that I take with this. Kick all the bums out. These institutions work if you keep them merit-based. And I could go on and on about IQ and why, how the Supreme Court won't let people um, use an IQ test to, to hire off of, which actually was a case that came right out of South Carolina, believe it or not. Duke Energy. Duke so, yeah, it was yep. the old Carolina yep. power lot. That's right. And that was probably a bad decision. Um, I get why they did it, but that was where we began to move away from merit and ability, and ah, just let them have it. So there's a lot of things that have got to come down, but it's mostly the tenants. It's not the building. But they want to blow the whole thing up. And maybe they can build it back better, but that's a big chance to take considering it got us here for 200 and some odd years. It's only been the last 50 to 70 that this thing has really started to just you know, get rusty and ossified and, and, and not work right. Well explained. Thank you, Larry. Got to take a break. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937. Tuesday morning, wake up, Carolina. I want to hear from you. Once again, we'll have this conversation for as long as you'd like. I know it's not what you're hearing in the mainstream media. I know it's not even what you're hearing on other conservative talk radio or Breitbart or uh, the American Conservative or the National Review. But I think it is the most important conversation people who see the world as the majority of us do. Now, Larry and I don't see exactly the same way. Uh, we're, we're pretty close. And I think there is a, I think there's more conversation to be had about this particular issue than there are any other in American politics. Is, is there enough commonality between the factions? For example, I mean, you're pretty much on the record. You ready to blow it up. I mean, just I am, blow I it am. up and start over. And I'm not sure that's smart. And and I don't think a lot of people are there. I mean, I think most of us, especially those of us that are listening to talk radio, you know, feel like something's wrong. You know, our institutions are not being run competently. Uh, certainly our political leadership is it right now <laughs> i think it's terrible um but you know is the answer to totally blow it up or if we can you know get some competent people in there to keep the institution sound and run them in a more and eh, in a in a better way okay if 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 we're going to replace yeah sure that's a very valid question and, and your argument probably makes more sense than mine i mean mine would be and, and i've got i've got to count this i mean i got to take into account this um i have this bent gene I mean, I know I do. I mean, I, I am I am far more inclined to blow it up than most others are. I'm I'm not sure that's smart. I mean, I'm not I'm not saying Rev. Um, I mean, Rev and I are standing with a fuse in our hand, and I've got the lighter already lit. Rev's go whoa 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 whoa! Don't don't light that yet. I mean, let's think through this a little bit more. Uh, so so I uh, yeah I accept that um, quality or or imperfect quality about myself, and I'm I'm certainly not arguing that I know we should light the fuse right now and blow it sky high. Here's the point I'll make, and here's the uh, the argument I'd ask Larry and you and whoever else uh, kind of lands where you do, because there's a lot more of you than there are of me, and and that's probably a, a logical place to land. But here's the question. Um, 
if we're going to, re- if, if we agree that we'd rather have a captain than a sailor, you know, um, navigating the ship or the vessel, um, who removes the captain? Who becomes captain? How do we do that? Um, you know, the great-great-grandfather owned the fishing boat. Uh, the great-great-grandson is nowhere near as competent as the great-great-grandfather was. It's obvious he doesn't need to be the captain of the ship, but it's his ship. I mean, have we given over ownership to the political system to the establishment? Once again, let's stop saying elite. These people believe in elitism more than the self-professing and what we've labeled the elite. I mean, they, they believe that we need almost a natural aristocracy where the elites are indeed in charge of making the decisions that direct the, the functioning government of America. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that is a very valid, I mean, it's not a criticism nor a complaint. It's a position you hold that I think is very thoughtful. Uh, in other words, yeah, I've got a fuse and I've got a lighter. And there's a little bit, a little bit of me that says light it right now. Light it right now and just run like hell and watch it blow sky high. That's probably not a thoughtful place. That's where I am, but I've never professed to be thoughtful in every regard. Um, now, now, I want to say this before we go to the phone. They believe, and I'm talking about the dark enlighteners, they believe that the only way this can survive, and I'm talking about the current form of government, because once again, they celebrate, and is this patriotic or not? They celebrate the numbers that show a deep decline in the trust of institutions. In other words, um, when that number goes from 38 to 35, they high-five one another. They believe the movement is contributing to our lack of um, trust in the decline, and they believe Trump. I mean, Trump's not one of them. They don't perceive Trump as one of them. Trump doesn't perceive himself as one of these. You know what they see Trump as? The necessary virus. Their word, not mine. He was the necessary virus that they believed once became president would expose how deep and motivated these people are to make sure we don't change captains. So they use Trump and Trump used them. I mean, they, they don't perceive Trump to be one of them by any stretch of the imagination, but they knew that you couldn't get elected president being a blogger, being in, in the dark corners of the web, being one of these dark enlighteners, and a chance in the world any of these people could get elected dog catcher. But they knew Trump had a brand and an image and a personality and a bombast and a bravado, and they knew if Trump showed up and won in 16, I mean, they predicted. I mean, a lot of these guys said, hey, when Trump gets elected, watch how unified some of these people get. The establishment, you said yesterday, what is the difference in the cathedral and the deep state? Very little. Very little difference in the cathedral and deep state. But their strategy, and this is how well thought out it is, their strategy was to basically recruit Trump because Trump has a brand. He has name ID off the charts. He'll say anything that comes in his head. He'll offend anybody in Washington. He'll motivate some of the uh, folks in flower country to vote for him. So when Trump gets elected, you know what they waited on? They waited on exactly what they knew would come. They knew the FBI would do what the FBI did. They knew the CIA would do what the CIA did. They knew the FBI, excuse me, the, uh, the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, but they don't believe this can survive without a captive audience. And I'm talking about a captive media. In other words, the media is all spewing the same lies, one after the other after the other, and a monolithical education system. That's how this has created itself. That's how it's manifested into what it is. And the only way to break that this, this, this stranglehold on government power is to basically destroy the media 
and dramatically reform America's educational system. Let's go to the phone. Here is Carl in the PD. Good morning, Carl. Hey, what's up? Hey, Carl. Uh, Ken, let me ask you this. I'm not, I'm not going to ask a, a whole lot of questions. I've listened to this for the past couple of days, by the way. I was just seeing where you were going. Let me, all right, so i got two questions. One, you're saying that these people want an elite based on their IQ. Is that correct? And it's, they, they put a lot of stock in IQ, but they want competent, result-oriented people. They want smart people who know how to run things as things should be run. And they believe that IQ is a big part of, you know, what the qualifications are to put people like that in those positions. Okay, we'll see that. Now, that's a, that's a mushy um, definition there because IQ is one thing. It's subjective. You just take the test, what's your IQ, boom, there you go. You know, people able to, to, to take care of things and do things, and all, that's, that, is, that is a shadowy area. You see what I'm saying? Sure I do. Now, here, so if it, so you're, you're saying it's not based on IQ. Well, I mean, no, but, but a lot of their – in other words, if they had a criteria of who gets to run the Department of Justice, they're not putting somebody in there with an 80 IQ. That well, they may no, have a threshold. Here's, here's what they. Here's what they. I think they would say if they had a, a criteria as to who to put in charge, it would be themselves. Let's just face. Let's just face the facts. Bingo. Because bingo. If you base it, if you base it on IQ, then th- just go home because. The Chinese have the highest IQ in the world, and the ones that come over here have higher IQs than Americans. And so game is over. And who wants to put Chinese in charge of American affairs? So, I mean, we just, we're talking about a group of people who want you know, to transfer the stranglehold that um, the cathedral has on America into their own stranglehold on America. And so that's all I got to say about that. Well, that, that's the debate. I mean, that, that, that's ab- absolutely. I mean, that, that is a very fair, I don't know if that's a criticism, but that's a debate we have to have. Are we simply going to take this uh, self-professing elite and replace it with a real elite? In other words, these folks are smarter than the majority of people. They, they are in the high, they're in the one percentile of IQ test and, and passing standardized testing. They all probably made, you know, the top one or 2% on the SAT score to get into Stanford or Yale or, or Princeton or Dartmouth. So yeah, Carl, I mean, that, that is a genuine um, concern to raise that we're going to replace the, the deadbeat establishment w- with, with their version or iteration of elitism. No, no, but their, their iteration was not the high IQ people. I told you who the high IQ people are. Chinese. No, you said the highest. I mean, you, you can't, these folks are very high IQ. Peter Thiel oh, aced well, the SAT twice. Blake Masters is a graduate from Stanford Law, running for um, Senate. I mean, I'm not saying they're as smart as every Asian student that comes to America, but these folks are plenty. They are absolutely high IQ. So high IQ white people. Ah, you probably you're probably getting pretty close there. You probably are. I mean, I, you know, as, as I study this more, that there is a there there is a definite belief that some people are smarter than others, and and women should be responsible for something. I mean, there's no question about that, and it's hard to argue. I mean, even if, if I try to defend it at every turn, it's hard for me to, to disagree with what you just said, that they would probably, they would never admit this, but yeah, that they would probably rather the government be run by a bunch of smart white people. Oh, here's another thing about the women part. 
they said that women are emotional, and that's true, but that's not the problem with women. The problem with women is that they need men to defend them. That's the problem with women. And every, any feminine woman on the planet, I don't care how smart she is, will tell you that, that she needs, to, she needs a man to defend her life. Interesting. Thank you, Carl. Appreciate it. Um, I don't know if Carl and I agree or disagree on this, like some of our, our conversations we have. I want to go back to some of the, um, once again, we'll go as far down this road as you'd like to go, or as uh, we'll stop today and start talking about you know, what the definition of recession is and, and the Al-Qaeda leader. To me, this is the top, uh, if we're talking about what America first, and, and, and a lot of us just believe America first showed up one day. You know, Trump announces he's running for president, and for some reason, created a bond with people in flyover country and the white working class and and some of the hayseeds and flyover. I mean, no, I mean, it was it was much more thoughtful than that. In fact, uh, I, I believe this. And, I, you know, I didn't talk to the guy yesterday that could tell me whether this is is true or not. I believe they sought Trump out. I mean, I believe that they knew somebody had to somebody had to run that could win. Right. I mean, you're not winning. I'm not winning. What does Trump have that very few people have? He has a brand and name ID. So we didn't have to spend millions of dollars introducing himself. I mean, everybody knew who Donald Trump was. Where he stood politically, didn't know. Didn't have any idea where he stood politically. But uh, the, the dark enlighteners really didn't care. And once again, they don't perceive Trump as one of them, but they know that Trump could do things that there's no way they could ever do. I mean, um, I want to be careful here. He told me a story yesterday of, of Teal and Trump. Um, having a conversation that didn't go so well. Teal goes back basically to Dark Enlightener headquarters and says, hey, th- this guy is more full of himself than I ever imagined he was, but we got to see this through. You know what I mean? We, we've got to we got to invest in this. It, it's the weirdest thing imaginable <laughs> when you've got these Dark Enlighteners who hold these, and Carl's right. I mean, there's some views they hold that are downright radical. I mean, they're downright radical. They believe they're scientifically based and supported. They believe they're 100% accurate. Now, nobody's 100% right. You aren't, I ain't, uh, nobody is. But but they believe, and by they, I mean, it, I'm treating them as almost they're a monolith, and that's probably a bit unfair. Um, they believe in elitism, but they believe elitism is basically the talented, the exceptional. Uh, the, the talented and exceptional should be in charge of these big government agencies. Um, they believe, and this is where it gets a little bit off kilter, they believe that smart, edgy white men have been um, most uh, discriminated against. I mean, in some of their writings and musings and pronouncements on podcasts, and it's weird, Rev, they don't have, uh, they, they don't have a television station. They're never invited on CNN, MSNBC, or Fox News, for that matter, but they've operated in this um, internet way in podcasting and blogs and um, essay writing. And I mean, it is a highly intellectual movement. I mean, I've often said, where is the intellectual underpinning for the Trump phenomenon? I found it. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind. You can like it. You cannot like it. We can agree some and disagree others. You can say it's racist. It's misogynist. Uh, maybe some of that is true. But, but I've looked long and hard for the intellectual underpinning for America first, and I found it. There is no doubt in my mind that these dark enlighteners are the intellectual underpinning for a movement that may or may not be, um, 
mean, there, there's not enough of them to get Blake Masters elected. They know that. I mean, they're well aware of that. I mean, Peter Thiel is, I think I saw yesterday, spent $16 million. He spent $10 million in Ohio on behalf of J.D. Vance. Uh, I think it's up to 16 or $17 million in, uh, in Arizona for Blake Masters, and he's um, running today. I think he wins the primary, and then he runs against uh, Mark Kelly, the astronaut from, uh, from Arizona. And, you know, it'd be interesting to see what Teal and some of these other folks do there. Now, now, nobody's told me this, but it seems to me as an outsider looking in that Teal bankrolls all of it, every bit of it. Uh, does the blog need uh, supplemental income? Does the does the has the essay not made mainstream? Rev, they got, is so sophisticated. This is interesting. They misspell certain words to avoid Google content moderation. <laughs> of course, I mean there's certain ways they you spell words, and you think, oh, well, yes. that guy's not an intellect. He misspelled these words. They intentionally misspell these words so the Google content moderator will teach their essay or treat their essay a little bit differently. I mean, this is a complicated, sophisticated political movement. It's really a cultural and societal movement that, that has political consequence and implication. I mean, it's not all about politics. But they're a little stealthy. It, it, unbelievably, <laughs> and a little bit scary. I mean, they're sketchy and scary and stealthy. No question about it. And Carl hit on a few things there. Um, you know, the, the, I think the concern I have, not a question I have, uh, the concern I have is, do they simply want to remove this entitled elite, uh, entitled establishment, and replace it with themselves? Do they want to be masters of the universe? They, they believe they're capable. They believe they're qualified. They believe they're the best of the best. I mean, the majority of these folks, if you look at a, um, I mean, he gave me about 10 names. When you look at the 10 people, I mean, they all went to the universities of people they criticized. They all went to Harvard, Yale, Stanford, Bucknell, Cornell, UPenn. I mean, they all went to these prestigious academic institutions. They know the people in charge of government. They just don't think they're very competent. They think the reason they're in charge of DOJ or the FBI or the Federal Reserve is they've gained political favor. They're not competent enough to be in charge of government. But what they have successfully done, Rev, is they have that they have basically created this captive audience. And by that, I mean uh, the, the monolithical education system in America, uh, the one-sided media in America, the cathedral believes the media and academia move as one. In other words, they're, they're, they don't send memos, they don't send letters, they don't wink and nod because they don't have to. Because everybody at CNN is thinking exactly what everybody in the faculty lounges of Harvard are. The faculty lounge of Harvard is thinking exactly what the faculty lounge at Stanford is. The faculty lounge in Stanford is thinking exactly what the editorial board of the New York Times is thinking. They don't have to send memos. And that's a little bit what uh, a little bit about what Bongino's been saying. Sure. Without using some of those words, he's been describing that. And uh, that's collective. what the cathedral is. That's what the cathedral is. Now, Sam yesterday tried to compare it to the Catholic Church. The, the only difference, I think that's a fair comparison, but the Catholic Church is one institution. We're talking about multiple institutions in a variety of sectors of the economy. You're talking about a bureaucracy working in concert with a media company working in concert with an institution of higher education. I mean, that, that's the cathedral in nature. Let's go to the phone. Here is Carol in Marion. Good morning, Carol. Hi. Uh, it's been a while since I've called in. Um, I take offense to something that Carl said. Usually... He sounds like a very smart man, but uh, I am a woman, and I will tell anybody I do not need a man to protect me. And I know a lot of other women that will. So 
he needs to stop sounding like a chauvinist. Thank you, ma'am. Appreciate that. I would imagine Carl just heard you um, mm-hmm. call him out there. That's good radio. I mean, now we've got callers talking about other other callers. That gets the host <laughs> off the hook. See? It's, it's normally the host that people have exception with. Um, you know, we we got to talk about it all in, it, in its totality. And there are that there are some signs of this movement that, that appear to be racially motivated, um, sexually motivated. By that, I mean um a gender motivated would be a better way to say it um you know i'm not calling everybody in the movement a racist i'm certainly not calling everybody in the uh, in the movement chauvinistic but uh or chauvinist a chauvinist but i think there are insinuations directly and indirectly within the movement um a lot of the a lot of the realities rev and, and as you talk to and listen to some of these people it's obvious that they believe the edgy smart white male has been so frowned upon in society that they they kind of want to lash out. That they'll say this is not personal. I mean, I hear this a lot with these people. This is not personal with me. Yes, it is because you're smart, you're edgy, you're white, and you're male. And they believe the smart, edgy, white male has been uh, discriminated against in, in quite the amazing. In other words, if you ask these guys, who did he run government? Well, I mean, it's obvious: smart, edgy, white man. I mean, that's who needs to run government. I mean, we're the brightest of the bright. I mean, we're the best of the best. If you're smart, you're edgy, you're white, and you're male, you're the guy. That needs to you fit the criteria, fit the bill for who needs to be in charge of whatever there is to be in charge of. Um, I think that's a fair. I don't want to say it's a criticism, but that's a, that's that's fair commentary because when you listen to the, I don't want to be personal here. Well, of course you do. That's why you're saying I don't want to be personal here. That's to let me know you're about to be personal here. Um, the smart, edgy white male has been discriminated against, and that's why the country's going to hell in a handbasket because we don't have enough smart, edgy white men behaving as smart, edgy white men should be allowed. To behave, we got too many smart, edgy white men trying to be something other than smart, edgy white men. <laughs> Take a break. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Surely the voice guy didn't just say the epitome of mediocre radio. <laughs> he, he right? Did. He did. I mean, what happened to the feeble attempt at radio brilliance? I mean, is this really the, the epicenter of mediocre radio? If the voice guy said it, it must be true. You know what that is? That's kind of a backhanded. What well, I mean. The, the guy running, the guy making these executive decisions now is from where? Where are you from, Freehold? Where are you from, Freehold? Howell Township. Okay, and that's in New Jersey, right? Correct. So a New Jersey guy's taking a shot at Southerners. Mm-hmm. That's what he's doing, guys. <laughs> oh, that's um, it. Yeah, he's having a little fun with us. The self-depreciating, though. The that's... Se- that's exactly right. That's ex- He asked me this morning, why do you want to involve me in these conversations? I don't want to be any part of this. I mean, I, I do my thing over here not behind uh, behind the mic. Hey, today is election day in five separate states. To me, the two most important states are Missouri, Roy Blunt retiring, um, Trump endorsed Eric. Eric who? Whichever one wins is what is what a lot of all. Um, That's kind of funny. Uh, it's him. It's him yeah. being him is all I can say, like it or not. And Blake Masters and uh, is it Lamon? I think Lamon in, uh, in Aaron. Those are the two I'm paying close attention to. But we've got elections in Michigan. We've got elections in Kansas, Missouri, Washington. Uh, Tanya Powers in New York City is with us this morning to um, to give us a journalistic report on these five states holding primaries. Tanya, what should we pay attention to? Good morning first, and what should we pay attention to? Good morning, and that mediocre radio, I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't let that pass either. I'm <laughs> telling you, I, I, I'm with you. I'll deal with it after hours, Tanya. You know, you know how that goes. <laughs> um, yeah, there are five states having the primaries today. There are, uh, there's, it's almost like a soap opera in a couple of these. 
Uh, first of all, you've got the Arizona governor's race, which is getting a lot of attention nationally. Uh, Doug Ducey, who is the Republican governor of Arizona, is term limited. The Democratic nominee, uh, Secretary of State Katie Hobbs, looks like you know that's looks like looks like that's you know kind of probably who's expected to be that one. The GOP primary there is sort of a a Trump versus Pence. If this was a wrestling match, it would be Trump versus Pence. You know what I'm saying? Um, I'm sorry. I was I was I got kind of caught up in WrestleMania over the weekend. Um, so Trump has endorsed a former news anchor, Carrie Lake, uh, and. Karen Taylor Robson is a businesswoman who has been endorsed by Mike Pence in the governor's in the governor's race primary, the GOP primary uh, for Arizona. So that's one of the reasons that's kind of getting a lot of attention because you've got the the sort of the dueling endorsements there. I think this is the first time we've had that um, in the Senate race there in Arizona. That's also an interesting one. Um, I think you mentioned Blake Masters. The uh, Trump-endorsed businessman there, he got that endorsement back in early June from Trump. Kind of put him sort sort of, you know, way up in the polls. But he's businessman Jim Lehman has been closing that gap um, in the polling as of recently. Mark, uh, they're they're looking for the, the you know the GOP uh, nomination there in the, in the primary. They're trying to you know go for the. Um, up against Mark Kelly in the fall. Mark Kelly is the Democrat who's currently got that seat. He's looking for a full term after he won that 2020 special election. The whole thing was sort of put in motion uh, by the death of John McCain. One of the other um, things you mentioned, you've got uh, Roy Blunt, the senator, uh, the Republican senator there in Missouri, who is retiring. There's about 20 people on the primary ballot trying to succeed him. Uh, Like you said, there's a couple of Eric's. Um, there's there's plenty of people in that in that one, uh, which is going to be really interesting to see how that one pans out. The uh, Michigan has its uh, Republican gubernatorial primary. Also, there's six candidates running in that one. Of course, uh, their current governor, Governor, governor Gretchen Whitmer, is a Democrat. She is seeking her second term there. As far as um, other stuff, ballot measures is not something we normally get real you know, granular with when it comes to national taking a, like a national view of things. This one is different. There's a uh, ballot measure in Kansas. There's uh, voters will have to, there's a question on the ballot today that will let voters decide whether to amend the state constitution to specify that it does not contain a right to abortion. This is the first test uh, that, that the abortion issue has faced state, like on a state level, uh, where it's going to the people to vote on it since the overturning of Roe v. Wade. So that one is is of particular note as well. A lot going on. Tanya, you reported very well. I'd love to get your opinion on these things, but I respect your journalistic job and uh, of coming <laughs> on the show, you. so so I'll be careful there. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate, you're, you're, you're the one who, you're the opinion guy. You go right out. You, you, you have a wonderful way of sharing yours so i'm just gonna let you handle that fair enough i gotta be thank you you've got a job thank you tanya appreciate your time tanya powers new york Uh city fox news radio um you, you, you and I were talking during the break about, you know, we knew that, um, tanya was coming on at seven 30 and she would talk about the Arizona primary. Mm -hmm. Um, and you had an intro, uh, kind of a, um, a speculative question. Well, the question is, uh, Blake Masters, who is in the lead now, is he one of them? I think Blake Masters is more one of them than anybody. Okay. I think Blake Masters is absolutely, I, I think he is, he is the, um, the epitome of someone seeking public office coming from that perspective. I think J.D. Vance is kind of half pregnant with dark enlightenment. I mean, I think he's 
Uh, Vance has a compelling backstory. You know, grew up in Appalachia, went off to Yale, crossed paths with Peter Thiel. Um, the interesting part of the Missouri uh Republican primary is, it seems for the first time, that once again, Trump kind of gave an open-ended endorsement. Uh, we're endorsing Eric, Eric Schmidt or Eric Greitens. Well, I mean, Eric, you know, and but Eric Greitens is uh, kind of the MAGA candidate in this race. Teal has endorsed Schmidt. And I don't know that Teal and Trump have ever been on different teams. I mean, they've never been at odds with one another in an election. And, um, and Eric Greitens basically took that endorsement and, and basically said, you know, this it's obvious Trump meant me. I mean, he didn't mean Eric in general. He meant me. Um, from what I hear, and this is a concern I would have, um, Greitens is the only, I mean, he's the most Trump candidate. No question about it. He's far more Trumpy than uh, than Schmidt is, but he's the only candidate that polling has um, shown he could lose Missouri. Roy Blunt and he's is had the, some scandals, right? Yeah, he's had some scandals and some um, some screw-ups, but, uh, but, but he's... Uh, he's, a, he's a very outspoken, I mean, he's an election denier. He doesn't believe the election was fair and square. Um, he's firmly uh, in, in the MAGA camp. Uh, he makes no bones about that. Schmidt has been very coy and careful in kind of, kind of navigating those complexities. Um, but this is kind of where we all land. Um, do you want an establishment Republican? Are you willing to roll the dice with one of these America first Republicans? Because once again, guys, I've heard over and over and over again, that America first lacks intellectual. I mean, it's not a smart political movement. It's a bunch of hillbillies, hayseeds, and cowboys gathering in a rodeo um, arena or a football stadium and 30,000 yelling and screaming, you know, um, make America great again or Don O, Don O, Don O. I mean, that's what CNN's trying to convince you it is. That's what MSNBC is trying to convince you it is. The, the, the point I'm trying to make, and maybe Bongino's doing something similar to this, no, I mean, th- there's a backstory here. And I want to say it again. I want to reiterate. They don't look at Trump as one of them. And they they certainly don't look at him as a stooge or a, or a mark or a pawn in the game. I mean, he was a, he was an accessory. I mean, he had to be. I mean, you know, whether they like Trump or not. Uh, when you listen to Trump speak and you listen to these guys speak and you watch or read some of what they've written, you, you got to believe that they have begrudgingly at times accepted Trump as the vessel or vehicle, but they knew that none of these folks could get elected. And if they wanted to transform American politics, it was going to take a bull in a china shop. Trump fits the bill. So I believe sincerely that when the dark enlightenment, um, when the dark enlighteners had their annual meeting, wherever it is, uh, probably some uh, Dracula castle somewhere, um, out of that comes the opinion that Donald Trump has to be. Whether we like him or not, it doesn't matter. I mean, it doesn't matter if we like where he stands on on taxes or where he stands on abortion or or where he stands on gay rights or where he stands on uh, on the government. I mean, he must he is going to help us get um, to the place of exposing the cathedral for who um, they really are. Let's go to the phone. Boudreaux in Orangeburg listening to WTQS. Hello, Boudreaux. Good morning. I, I, I got a separate comment I want to get to. But first, I want to address Miss Carroll. Uh, it was it Carl. She said was uh was he the one that was the sexist? Well, I think she was. She accused. I don't know if she accused Carl of being a sexist. She said what he said was very chauvinist. Misogynist. Chauvinist. That's the word she used. Well, you know, I'm trying to defend Carl here a little bit because Carl, I, if I understood right, he didn't say all women. I believe he he prefaced that with with something else, but uh. And she said that she knows a lot of women that would say the same thing that you know that they don't need a man, but they'd say it. 
But when that ship's starting to sink and they're lining up them women and children to get on the lifeboat while the men sit there and take their chances, every last one of them go get in that damn line. So indirectly, they're going to let a woman, let a man protect them. That, I mean, that's most of them. Now, Carol's an exception, and there's a lot of exceptions. But I don't think Carl was being uh, chauvinistic or, or misogynistic. I, I think it's an accurate, uh, I think he's being accurate. And, of course, there are exceptions, and I'm sure Carol is one of them. But let that let that uh, hostage situation get real, and uh, they negotiating for who? The women and children. And they'll be glad to go. Anyway, that's not what I called about. You're talking about people being able to, uh, everybody getting an equal vote no matter what. Well, I went to, I ain't going to say where I went yesterday. I went through a drive-thru. I ain't going to tell you where I went. I, I bought a Whopper, all right? Listen, my bill was $8.38. I gave the lady a quarter, a dime, and three pennies. That's 38 cents. Took care of. I gave her a $20 bill and three ones. And then I just sat and watched. So I'm on $15 back, Ken. That's easy, math. You ain't, you got to take your socks and shoes off to count that. She gave me back two fives and five ones, which means she gave me back the three ones that I gave her. And I looked at her, kind of gave her my what-the-hell look, and I said, you don't have a 10 and she said, oh, yeah, I got a 10. I said, well, can I get one of those? She said, oh, yeah, okay, get, just give me them two fives back. I said, how about if I give you a five and five ones back? Ken, she looked up in the air like she was counting in her head. She goes, oh, yeah, that'll work. Now, her vote's going to count just like mine and yours, Ken, and that's why we're in the mess we're in right there. I'm convinced of it. I just And, and we, when they do the get-out-the-vote thing every four years, they they trot out some of these people and they'll they'll pretty much say, yeah, I don't know much or nothing about nothing, but I'm gonna vote. Really, really, and we wonder why the country's in the shape it's in. Uh, anyway, that's my soapbox, and I don't mean no offense to Carol. Please don't be mad with me and, and fuss at me, but I I don't think Carl was being uh, chauvinistic at all. I think he was being pretty accurate uh, with most of the fair sex. Thank you, Boudreaux. Appreciate that. You know, when you go back to what we said yesterday, what I said yesterday, um, and let's refer to these as the new right. I mean, there's kind of a, there's the new right, and then there's a subset within the new right called the dark enlighteners. And uh, and guys, all I'm interested in is the sustainability or not of America first. I mean, I want you to please understand, I'm not a dark enlight, probably am. I don't refer to myself as a dark enlightener, but, but in all honesty, my proclivities probably suggest that I am. Um, like, like Rev said a second ago, I mean, I've made it crystal clear that I think the only option is blow it up. I mean, I'm willing to take that chance. What comes next? I don't know, but we don't have what we had. And I believe there are a lot of voters in America today. And I've told candidates this, um, I spoke to the Darlington County GOP last week. And one thing I remember, I said, you give a, you give an America first voter a chance to vote for what is and was, or what could be, and they're voting for what could be. So in essence, aren't they kind of lighting the fuse as well? I mean, maybe, maybe they don't understand the dark enlightenment. Maybe they're, they're not even familiar. They don't want to know about the dark enlightenment. They probably turned the radio 30 minutes ago because I'm kind of force feeding the masses this dark enlightenment. What I want you to understand, and this is important to me, when someone says that America first is a, is a dumb political movement, it's a bunch of buffoons who gather in a football stadium and yell and scream for another buffoon, that there's something behind the scenes at work that is as intellectual as any political movement of my lifetime. That's the point I want you to understand. This is a deeply intellectual political movement 
Trump is not an intellectual. Nobody would miss or confuse Trump with, with being. I mean, he's plenty smart. I mean, you end up with a billion dollars in your own private jet, you're a smart guy. But he's not an intellectual. I doubt Trump has ever read Atlas Shrugged or, 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 or knows what the um, what were the essay Nitschke and some of the, I mean, you see where I'm heading. I mean, he, he might know Milton Friedman, but he might not. But, but nobody's accusing Trump of being dumb, but he's not an intellectual. There is very much an intellectual movement behind the scenes at work, not not making sure just Donald get, Trump gets elected president, but to make sure we shred some of these um, institutions that have become so monolithic that they get to declare, they, they, they get to be the guardians of what is acceptable discourse. And at the end of the day, if one group of one mindset or the guardians of what public discourse and acceptable discourse is, we're going to end up in a bad, bad place. So when someone says, oh, you're a part of that dumb America first movement, th- this is what I'm trying to equip you with, kind of the intellectual underpinning of what makes this the smartest political movement in America today. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number as we continue talking about the dark enlightenment, uh, the ten red pills, the blue. I mean, this is a. I mean, it, it, it's really, guys. When you think you've gone as far down the rabbit hole as you can, you realize you've only begun. <laughs> that there's another blogger that graduated from Stanford. That there's another. Does it get um, you more interested the more you read and the deeper you well, dig? I mean, it, the, the more I scratch my head, the more I go, wow. Uh, the more I cuss, you know how you mumble cuss words to yourself, like "damn." <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, there's a couple of others I don't think we say on the radio, but like, I'll read an article, uh, it leads me to another, and then somebody will make a recommendation, and I'll read this and I'll read that. The point I'm trying to make is that Trump is the—I mean, he's the face. I mean, there is no doubt about it. He is the—I mean, he's the symptom of all these. I mean, it's kind of a cause and effect. I mean, if if you do the things the government has done for an extended period of time, you're going to cause something radical to happen, something out of the ordinary to happen. Trump is a manifestation. The 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 argument I'm trying to make is it's not void of intellectualism. I mean, there's a very intellectual argument to make for voting for Donald Trump. People say it's emotions. I mean, it's it's um no. I mean, when when you read some of what these folks have had to say, and Rev, this goes back to 2000. Six and seven and eight. I mean, this is, you know, a 15-year-old in-the-works transition. And Peter Thiel is kind of the, I mean, from what I've gathered, Thiel seems to be the conduit between the the dark enlighteners and Trump. I mean, there's a point of connection, like you said about Garth Brooks. Mm -hmm. I mean, Garth kind of connected country to pop and rock. Um, Thiel would be Garth Brooks. This, um, This unacceptable speak on American politics and this, you know, this genuine... Uh, American political phenomenon in Donald Trump, and somebody's got to kind of connect those two and Teal, um, because he's got you know several billion dollars. <laughs> that, I mean, that makes him, yeah, no question about but it. Do, when you can but, bankroll some of this, but do you think, okay, where where the dark enlightened are right now? Do you think they want Trump to run again? Although they're excited about Mike Pence. I mean, they see oh, Pence. Oh. They, they see Pence as a, really. They see Pence as just a wild man, a political <laughs> disruptor, someone who goes mm-hmm. in and and knocks everything down. And and, and now, of course, they want Trump to run again. And Trump's not a stooge. I mean, he's not a pawn in their game. Um, he's not a useful idiot. They understand that Trump is not intellect, and the majority of these folks are intellects. They understand that Trump is um, is who he is, and they they accept that for what it is. But but they also understand that. That to gain for their formula, for their formulations, for their political formulations 
to be acted upon, a full exposure has to happen. In other words, is every is the cathedral real? I mean, that's the first thing you've got to convince people of. Is the cathedral real? Do, do, the, do the prestigious universities in America um, think exactly the same thing as the media outlets in America? Do the media outlets in America think exactly the same thing the bureaucratic agency heads in America think? And I think Trump has exposed that. So, so when, when a lot of people try to argue that, well, Trump is their stooge. I mean, he's their useful idiot. No, no, not at all. Trump has a skill set and quality that they don't have. Certainly they have one that he doesn't. Do you think Trump would write three essays a week? And I'm talking about long, entailed essays. Of course not. Trump would rather do a rally where people sing his praises and, and you know, tell him how great he is. So they, they you know, they're, they're, they're using one another. They need Trump. Trump certainly needs them. Take a break. Back in just a minute. 843-661-0937. Dr. Will Bolt is with us this morning. Uh, we'll get him in just about two seconds. First, I want to, um, I'll repeat something I told Rev and Dr. Bolt during the break. <laughs> uh, we're talking about the dark enlightenment. We're talking about some of these, um, what I refer to as the intellectualism to Trump's phenomenon. Um, are they closely associated? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know how much they coordinate or communicate. Trump is not an intellectual. He's plenty smart, but he's not the guy that we believe has read everything Milton Friedman has ever written or Nitschke or, or some of these other um, uh, uh, Anne Rand. I mean, I doubt Trump even knows who, who she is. Atlas shrugged what? Shrugged his shoulders? Shrugged his uh, – well, yeah, I, I don't have any clue about that. But, but Trump is, once again, uh, the political disruptive force, and that's what they were looking for. I told Rev during the break, and I'll say it publicly um, – these guys scare me a little. I mean, they do. They're, they're edgy. They're sketchy. They're unbelievably smart. Um, they're zealous. I mean, the very characteristics that kind of freak people out are what I find myself kind of um, inclined to believe in and support. Uh, but I, I, I'm nervous about them. I mean, there's no question about it. Uh, my kids will grow up in America. Uh, my grandkids will grow up in America. What sort of America do they grow up in? Um I'll go on the record. I think these folks will influence policy. I think they will. Um, I think they will mandate a change. It's not ten or twelve bloggers. Um, I spoke to a young person yesterday, much younger than I, but they're not twenty. I mean, they would be in their late thirties, early forties, and uh, it was kind of interesting. He said, "I should have got married years ago because now I can't find a woman. Every woman I meet now doesn't believe in God, believes in CNN, and is a vegan." <laughs> and I'm like, well, that Ouch. ship has sailed, brother. I don't know what to tell you now. But yeah, he said, every woman I meet, every woman I meet, especially the real attractive ones, they believe CNN, don't believe in God, and they're vegans. Mm. And I don't want to live with a woman who believes CNN, doesn't believe in God, and, and doesn't want any kind of meat to eat. I just don't want to live with a woman like that. But no, I mean, you, you, as I said earlier, Rev, and I'll say it again, um, I certainly don't have this figured out. But to me, it's the most curious uh, loosely affiliated political association in America today. And the point I'm trying to drive home, and I'm going to be persistent, almost overbearing about this, when someone calls you dumb for voting for Donald Trump, as if you just don't understand how complicated American politics are and, um, and how, you know, moderation and the right temperament. No, th this is as intellectual a political movement, if you're willing to try and understand it, as any political movement that has come on the scene in a long, long time. It's not Trump adding the intellectual underpinning. Once again, I don't think Trump is dumb at all. 
I mean, you don't end up on the good side of a billion-dollar fortune by being a moron. I can assure you Donald Trump knows how to figure and, and, and ponder and, and, and uh, plunder around the world and make sure he gets more than his fair share. But I think, you know, intelligentsia has to be a part of policy and, and you know, government. And these guys add that this is kind of the most unlikely relationship you could ever imagine. Let's go to the phone. Jim and Florence. Good morning, Jim. Hey, good morning, guys. I don't know if you've heard it, Kim, but you got a commercial running with a guy trying to mimic Matthew McConaughey's voice, and he he quotes some lines from probably the best movie of all time, which is Dazed and Confused. But in that movie, Ken, um, as the kids are being released from class for the summer, the white female teacher says, uh, this summer, when you're being inundated with all this American bicentennial Fourth of July brouhaha, don't forget what you're celebrating, and that's the fact that a bunch of slave-owning, aristocratic white males didn't want to pay their taxes, which is something that's been forced down the throat of, uh, um, by the use of education um, and is a very unintellectual view of the revolution. Um, so the idea that education um, has been indoctrinating the youth of this country um, through the use of feminism and other tactics is nothing new. And obviously, this movie was released in 1993, about the summer of 76. Um, so it, it goes much further back. Um, but, Ken, lastly, I can understand why, you know, a woman might take offense to, to Carl's comments on the surface. Um, but the rise of, of the woman since World War II is only because we've created a, sci- a society that makes it possible. You know, feminism isn't about equality. It's about power. Um, you know, Feminists aren't arguing for equality and brick masons and garbage collectors and the such. They're arguing for power in the boardroom and in politics. Um, so it's all about power. It's not about equality. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Jim. Appreciate that. That's kind of an interesting um, take on it. And uh, yeah, and uh, I mean, I don't think I could do Matthew McConaughey as good as that. Anyway, uh, that's story for another day. Because uh, us folk from uh, uh, some of us from South Carolina talk like people from Texas, and people from Texas talk like. Uh, folks from South Carolina, I've told the story before. I went to New York several years back. My son and I went to a Springsteen concert at Madison Square Garden. Back in the day, you could afford to see the boss. Back when you um, did things yeah, like that. You didn't have to take out a mortgage on your home. Um, and once again, uh, update, real close. I mean, I, I argued yesterday, um, Dr. Bolt will be interested in this, because um, he's kind of associated himself with this show. Um, we tried to buy Springsteen tickets Friday over the air. Good morning, sir. How are you? Hey, good to hear. Good so, to be back. so we tried to buy Springsteen tickets. Rev was helping me. Uh, we actually got in the uh, got to the waiting room, got to the queue, did everything, had our payment method ready and available, um, and uh, dynamic scoring took over, and we tapped out. I mean, we just it was as if we were in the chokehold <laughs> and just couldn't endure the pain and anguish. At ten thirteen, uh, Madison Square Garden was sold out. And I think the last few tickets Rev and I saw were nosebleeds for 300 bucks. Some of the better seats were going in the thousands and thousands of dollars. A couple of thousand seemed to be kind of the average price for a lower-level ticket. Um, but I remember going to uh, – well, I want to stay here for a second because I said yesterday that I am officially divorcing Bruce Springsteen. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm requesting a lawyer to come in and, and work through whatever the legalities that are necessary – but then I realized that I don't want to ever be um, mistaken having been involved in a same-sex marriage. I mean, I'm just not, I mean, I, you know, to each his own. And I mean, that sincerely. I mean, I'm not, I'm not opposed to any of that. I mean, everybody does what everybody does, and I'm cool with it. But 
you know, I am a married man. I'm heterosexual. And, um, and I don't want to be mistaken for someone who has been, in other words, if I had divorced Bruce Springsteen and some way, somehow it makes it uh, way to the media, then, you know, that they would argue that I am now, uh, severing a same sex, uh, relationship. <laughs> and I just didn't want that on my record. I mean, I've got a lot of other demerits on my record. I didn't want that there as well. <laughs> so what I've argued is, um, Springsteen has defrauded me and I think he needs to be charged with fraud. How has he defrauded you? I mean, you didn't buy the tickets. You had a right to buy or not. Well, no, but he sings his entire career about factory workers and blue-collar lifestyle. The people who live in Buffalo, Dr. Bolt, the people who worked at the mills, the people who live in in Pamplico, that's who he has basically dedicated his entire, um, dare I say, lyrical genius toward. And, um, and now he's Enron. I mean, he's, he's a fraud. He's, he's not who he says he was. He's not who we thought he was. And I don't know what he owes me. He owes me a part of my soul back. There you go, Rev. He owes me part of my, my dignity and my soul wow, back. That's expensive. So, so, yeah, you better believe it. You damn well better believe. And we live in this very litigious society. So I'm sure I can find a lawyer that will file a case, not a, not a divorce case, because I'm not interested in same-sex marriage, but rather a fraud case against the um, one of the all-time great icons of rock and roll who has made his living singing about things he really and truly doesn't believe in because once again, talk about captive audience, when Springsteen sings, you know, um, a jack-of-all-trade in Madison Square Garden and he talks about the fat bankers, he'll have a very captive audience because everybody in that arena will either work at Goldman Sachs or J.P. Morgan. So good luck, uh, Bruce. Uh, but you got a lawsuit coming your way, and I'll find me a lawyer. Rest assured, I've seen the billboards. I mean, I know there are billboards. 1-800-GOT-SCREWED. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, Dr. Bolt, I want to drag you back to this conversation. And the last thing a college professor needs to be is talking about the dark enlightenment and uh, and this um, these shadowy creatures in the uh, in the web. But, I mean, it's real. I mean, it, there is a there is an association with Donald Trump and, and, and the simple to nature of which people believe this political movement, but they're also highly educated men and sure. women in kind of the dark corners of the political world who ascribe to some of the same notions that were relatable to the American working class. Oh, for sure. And I think a lot of us, maybe those of us who have a, a foot or two in the movement sort of underestimated and thought, well, just didn't think that, oh, no, they, they're, they're just voting. For, right, and they're gonna they're gonna hold they're gonna hold their nose just because they can't stomach or vote for a Democrat. And certainly, 2016, right? Maybe just if you were with your friends out on the golf course, rubbing elbows, just say, "Oh yeah, yeah, I, I like." I think now people are now able to come out uh, and more and more are saying, "Well, heck yeah, I'm an America firster. I like Donald Trump and what he stands for. I'm gonna go out. I'm gonna vote in a primary for somebody who is endorsing that movement as well." And so that it has increased exponentially. Big academic word, uh, but again, so more and more people again are not shamed. They're they're coming out and they're trying to convince others as well. You see this right in church parking lots, Sunday school classes. Uh, people would kind of maybe whisper about their politics. Now, man, there's <laughs> you you pretty much know where a lot of people stand. Uh, people aren't shy about it. I mean, and maybe that's a good thing. So many people uh, coming out of Trump. Maybe this is one of his great legacies. Uh, forget any of the policy or the Supreme Court. How many more people are now actively engaged in politics around the clock? We're, we're talking about primaries in Missouri and Arizona. You wouldn't dream of that 10, 20 years ago. Uh, only the biggest political junkies would have been concerned 
about that. Now it's a national news story. So, and I, and I think that's a testament to Trump. Okay, as a historian, I mean, you, you don't have the luxury of, of retrospect. In other words, you've got to make a call right now. What is America first? I mean, to the historian trying to explain America first today, not 100 sure. years from now, and not, not looking back at the Jefferson, Jackson, Hamilton, you know what I mean? I mean, some sure. of these personalities that have been so central to American history, let, let's talk about America first now. From a historical sure. perspective, what is it? Right. All right, if you were asking me to write a, a textbook, just a couple of paragraphs on what America first is for just a general audience, okay, this is a, a grassroots movement by Americans across the country who felt that the country has abandoned them and turned its back on them. A lot of these are your blue-collar Rust Belt workers who traditionally, for generations, had been New Deal Democrats. And now, again, as a result of bad trade policies, um, the American dream is no, has become the American nightmare. Right? It's a Bruce Springsteen song for many of these individuals. They've been patiently supporting the Democratic Party. They've supported Republicans. They haven't gotten anywhere. All right, their, their situation has and in fact, their status has perhaps declined. There's just, there's no nest egg, right? There's no chance now for their, their sons and daughters uh, to sort of move up in American society. And so you can kind of talk about Pat Buchanan in the early 1990s. Ross Perot kind of touched on this. There was always this raw nerve out there just waiting, and it was a Manhattan real estate broker, Donald Trump, who tapped into it. And again, pulled Americans from diverse spectrums uh, into this movement. Again, talking about, right, we need to renegotiate or abandon these crappy garbage trade deals that we have with China, which are exploiting, taking advantage of America. We just need to stop sending our jobs overseas, right? There's nothing wrong, right? For many Americans at post-World War II, you went to the factory, you had a good middle-class living, right? You could afford to send your kids to college. You could afford a comfortable retirement. You could take vacations. You don't have that now, right? So again, this is, again, this is as far as I understand, and I'm sure you've got more feet in well, the I mean, water okay, than I do. But, but stay there one second. So so we spent yesterday and a good bit of today talking about the dark enlighteners, okay. the, the, these libertarian, um, almost anarchist who um, I just just kind of want to blow it up. I mean, in all honesty, I'm not sure that the the Trump voter wants to blow it up. They want government to work and represent their interests, consider their plot in life. These um, so some of these intellects want to blow it up. Who are these people, from your perspective, that we spent what five hours <laughs> trying to explain and and decide who they are? I mean, from your perspective, I mean, you know the group I'm talking sure about. Well, there's always there's sort of this unwritten rule, this gentleman's agreement. In politics, right? You sort of you, you serve on a uh, the school board or PTA, and you kind of move your way up, and so you know what the you, you know what to say. You know how the game is played, right? You, you you make some deals, you have a dinner with somebody. This is how stuff gets done. These disruptors are like, I'm going right to the front of the line, and I'm not, I'm going to run for the house. I'm going to run for the senate. I'm going to run for governor. All right, and again, we've tried it the old way. Where's it gotten us? All these professional careerist politicians, what have they done for the average Joe, uh, the average mom and pop, right? All these small businesses are being scuttled, right? Jobs are being shipped overseas. It's broken beyond the point of repair. So why not try something new? Why not try and think outside of the box? We've been using the same models for 50 years. Where's it gotten us? Let's try something new. And sorry, I think this is where this disruptive force is coming in. And it's coming from a lot of different places. Is there a call? 
Okay, there is no call. I thought there was another <laughs> call there. Okay, let's let's take a break. I want um I want Doctor Bolt to hang around for one more segment. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Is there has there been a time? I'll I'll tell you where I'm going ahead with this. Give me an example in American history where the public has been this bothered by the way politics are being conducted, and did change happen? Were there monumental changes uh, when these forces? And I'm talking about some of the um. I'll say it. I mean, I'm a hayseed. Some of the hayseeds that, you know, jump on the Trump bandwagon with some of these um, dark enlighteners who are working behind the scenes in a very intellectual way. Is there a chance to have real change in American government? Back in a minute. Dr. Will Bolt, history professor, Francis Marion University, is with us this morning. So all of us or most of us are familiar with the Boston Tea Party. But but is there any example in, in recent American history, modern American history, of a public uprising changing um, the I don't know, the trajectory of government. <laughs> well, if you want to go back to one, you look at uh, uh, Andrew Jackson's inaugural. Andrew Jackson was inaugurated in 1829, and he said, well, the White House is the, the people's house. And, so and the after, drunk showed up. Exactly. Jackson opened up the White House to, to the people for the first time. None of his predecessors had done this. <laughs> and, you know, they're Things might have gotten out of hand in polite Washington society. There was one guy who said he met someone from Louisiana who was half man, half alligator, and the the people came in. They were stealing the china, ripping the the paintings off of the wall. It was like a, a high school house party. A couple of broken Go legs, around. I think. Somebody right. jumped out of a window. Yes, and, broke. and Jackson finally said, oh, my gosh, what are we going to do? And somebody said, well, take the punch bowls outside, which had all the alcohol in it, and the people followed the punch bowls and... Once they got there, Jackson closed the doors. <laughs> and when Jackson won re-election for his second inaugural, he, he didn't open up the White House uh, the next time. But Jackson is sort of this original disruptor in American politics. Uh, military general, this rough guy, uncouth. I mean, Thomas Jefferson said that he couldn't speak a, a single sentence without stammering and cursing. Broke the mold. Wasn't like anything before him. But again, where Jackson is is different from what we're talking about now is that all of the guys who were with Jackson were your traditional republic or traditional politicians, excuse me. They had the good sense to realize, hey, this Jackson guy is popular. This is the way the winds are blowing. I'm going to align myself with him. Whereas now, again, this is just a, a grassroots movement. Individuals who maybe until 2016 didn't care about politics at all just every four years would go out and vote and now politics has has consumed them and certainly this is what jackson and jefferson a lot of the original founding fathers had wanted uh, an actively engaged citizenry who doesn't just come out whenever there's election again there's school board meetings anything uh, people are coming out okay stay there stay there one second then because my mind's going a million miles an hour sorry (laughs) so jackson is uh the disruptor everybody knows that Jefferson First was the outside. intellect. I mean, Jefferson yes. was a political intellect. All right. Oh, yes. I mean, he's a political theorist, but he's an intellect by by nature. So, in modern day, if there is something called the Dark Enlighteners, and they are behind the curtain, and they are, you know, um, trying to move the meter in a direction that does cause disruption and chaos in American government, is that what Jefferson kind of did with Jackson? I mean, did did what was Jefferson the blogger, the dark enlightener who stayed out of the way? I mean, he was the intellectual force sure. behind a lot of this. I mean, Jefferson and Jackson agreed a lot 
Oh, but absolutely. I mean, they had a fundamental belief in in, in governing <laughs> philosophy. Jefferson just did it in a more what dignified and and reverent way. Jefferson liked his wine. Jackson liked his his whiskey, mm-hmm. uh, if you will. But no, Jefferson was again the the supreme intellect. You know, just loved to read, loved uh, to write. Andrew Jackson, you know, I'm not going to read a book. I mean, Jackson had trouble spelling the word the. You know, he forgot to put the e at the end of it. And sorry, Jackson kind of like like Trump. I'm not going to get bothered in all this boring minutia. I'm not going to try and convince somebody, you know, with a three-hour speech or write a treatise as to why they vote. I'm going to bring them over to the White House, and I'm going to put pressure on them, right? That's how I'm going to try and get them to come around to my viewpoint. But surely Jefferson enjoyed watching the Hamiltonian squirm when Jackson was in the room or Jackson's policies were being enacted. Because, I mean, we're still having a Jeffersonian-Hamiltonian debate, right? That's, I mean, it's, even in, it's in, the entire Ocker yeah, that's history. what I'm, I mean. So, so with yeah. Jackson's president, the fundamental debate in American politics is the Jeffersonian the way or the sure. Hamiltonian way. Right. Um, Jackson was obviously a Jeffersonian. Oh no, daughter, no, no. he he thought he was the intellectual heir of Thomas Jefferson. Right? So the Hamiltonians, I gotta believe, and I didn't. I mean, I wasn't there, didn't experience it, but I gotta <laughs> believe the Hamiltonians, despite their disagreements, respected Jefferson's intellect. I mean, they sure. respected oh, yes. his dignity and and you know his um his understanding of of they, government. Didn't like his self righteousness. Well, I mean, I get that. I mean, it, but I, and it certainly, I mean, I, I certainly understand that. But but I got to believe that Jefferson took joy in watching the Hamiltonian struggle with President Andrew Jackson. Probably, yeah. I mean, certainly. And Jefferson's getting old uh, by this time. But man, the guy was still writing dozens of letters every day and still trying to keep up an active correspondence and still actively involved writing talking politics uh to his supporters even up until the very end but again though jackson just could yeah could could really stick it to you uh, and again and you know if, if jackson didn't like you uh you knew about it and jackson was the guy kind of like lyndon johnson later on you know if, if you if you pulled one over on jackson or if you didn't vote the way jackson wanted to uh, you weren't going to get that federal funding. You know, Lyndon Johnson, of course, was famous for closing down military bases for guys who didn't go with him. Uh, Jackson was kind of doing the same thing. He so ha- had a petty Hamilton problem. gets killed when? I mean, Burr, Burr shoots Hamilton in the duel. 1804, 1805, right? Okay, who flies the flag of Hamiltonian after that? I mean, once Hamilton is shot and killed, who becomes the, sort of, uh, I guess, the, uh, the, the chief advocate for, for Hamiltonian government? You kind of have John Marshall from the Supreme Court and then legislatively— Andrew Jackson's nemesis, Henry Clay. And, of course, when Jackson is on his deathbed, he's asked if he has any regrets, and he says, I have but two, that I didn't hang my vice president, John C. Calhoun, and that I didn't shoot Henry Clay in the head. So what was the problem he had with Calhoun? (laughs) Well, Calhoun was his vice president. Correct. Calhoun talked a little bit about uh, secession. And Jackson, even though was a southern slaveholder, Jackson believed the union was permanent. It was like the the mob. Uh, Once you're in it, Uh, You can't get out. So much so that when the Civil War starts, Abraham Lincoln, when he needs guidance and wisdom of all the presidents to look back to, he goes back to the Southern slaveholder, Andrew Jackson, who had stood up and said, no, a state cannot secede from the Union. Interesting. Um, I've got a little bit of a um, personal relationship with uh, John C. Calhoun in the lieutenant governor's <laughs> office in South Carolina. The couch in that office belonged to John C. Calhoun, and I was always afraid to sit on it. I mean, because he was such a, um, I mean, John C. Calhoun was a cutthroat political figure, without question. 
Now he knew he knew how to get a few things. Calhoun though was cut from the Jeffersonian camp, correct? As well, let's just have a nice wine party. Calhoun would write these lengthy dissertations, and Calhoun hated a stump speech. Hated, and whenever Calhoun spoke in the Senate, people grumbled. Oh my God, it's three hours of boring stuff. He's going to go talk about the ancient Romans and the Greeks. I mean, Henry Clay <laughs> and the others. There'd be colorful metaphors. He'd make fun of people. There'd be four-letter words. I mean, Calhoun just kind of like the Senate nowadays. You know, you know, you nobody turns on C-SPAN and just dull, boring, blah. Reading speeches given by Andrew, uh, excuse me, um, uh, Thomas Calhoun. Excuse me, not Thomas Calhoun. Uh, <laughs> Why is my mind going blank here? Jefferson? John C. Calhoun. John C. Calhoun. Let's go to the phone. <laughs> Thanks, Bob and Florence. Hello, Bob. You're on the air. Yeah. Good morning, guys. And good morning, Professor. I'm really enjoying this. Um, I'm not sure if the historical perspective is. Uh, kind of knocked me off my uh, balance here, but I guess my question is these dark enlighteners and I'm trying to understand. And I, and, and Ken, I did listen to that uh, university of San Diego uh, professor's lecture. Um, does this mean that I, as a Trump supporter and an American firster, am I a useful idiot for the dark enlighteners? And I'll drop off and you can answer the question. Thank you, Bob. Appreciate that. No, I don't think it's that at all. I think there are certain um, uh, certain skill sets that all of us have that we bring to the yeah. table. I mean, I, you know, I, I've often wondered that. I mean, I've known a little bit about there was a movement. I mean, when you hear Peter Thiel, I mean, you know, you know, Thiel's associated. You got to believe there's some degree of intellect and understanding there. Um but, but no, I don't think, I mean, I think Bob knows the answer to that. He's just trying to be a bit facetious. I don't think you're a, a you know, a, um, a pawn to game at all. I don't think you're a useful idiot at all. I think we need them and they need us. You know, anytime I can involve myself in a political movement that includes variety and diversity and smart, competent people, I mean, that's what I want to be a part of. And, and I do think it's a, and I'll ask Dr. Bolder jump in here. I do think it's a, um, it's kind of a weird relationship. The Trump voter has been perceived as what? Um, the disgruntled middle class, right? I mean, when you talk about Trump voters, I mean, it would be, by and large, those who have ended up on the bad side of trade, immigration, uh, you know, China being legitimized as a member of the World Trade Organization. And and I, we don't go any deeper than that. Riff said something interesting a minute ago when he said, why don't we hear more about uh, the um, the Curtis Yarvins, the Peter Thiels, the, some of these folks you're talking, why don't we hear more about that once again, it adds intellectual underpinning. Sure. It presents or proposes Trumpism as something that has been more thought out than not. I think the smartest thing in America to do today is to be an America firster. I mean, I can't understand why anybody would not align with America first. I don't care what your opinion of Trump is. So, so if anybody out there says, well, I've got great problems with the America first agenda, the American first brand, the America first direction, I just don't think you've tried to understand exactly what the priorities and principle. You're nodding your head there. You grew up in Buffalo. Sure. You can relate to that. I think a lot of us, right, have underestimated and just sort of took what the media told us, that all oh, these Trumps, they're just these these backward hasty Mad as hell. Right. And when you go out... Back to Buffalo, back to other, you realize that they're, they're just like you. It cuts across every socioeconomic dynamic. And you, you look at Missouri, the the Eric Reitens is a Rhodes Scholar. That's a, that's a, that's a tough get. Not many people uh, can make that claim. And how He's many people know that? 
mean, you know yeah. what Eric Grimes is? He's the Trump supporter that that um coerced a female right. into certain. I mean, it's the scandalous things that right. Grimes has done. Eric Grimes a Rhodes Scholar, Navy highly SEAL, highly educated, Navy SEAL, Navy SEAL. <laughs> I mean, imagine. I didn't know that. So you didn't know that. The media's not going to tell you. He is MAGA to the bone. Yes, I mean, he is 100% MAGA. He is 1,000% committed <laughs> to America First. The guy's a Rhodes Scholar and Navy SEAL. How is he running for Senate in Missouri? And the mainstream media is not told, we the people, that not only is he a guy that's had a scandal, he's a guy who was a Rhodes Scholar and a Navy SEAL. I mean, that's a man of accomplishment. Right, Dr. Bolt? For sure. If you, if you were a political consultant, that checks off a lot of boxes. That's a pretty attractive candidate, uh, especially in a red state like Missouri. And and that's the point I'm trying to make is I think the level of intellect involved in America first. I mean, we, we talked to Bob before. Bob's a smart guy. I mean, you can, I mean, he's being a bit self-deprecating in the way he said, am I a useful idiot? He knows he's not. He's, he's, he's very comfortable knowing that he's not a useful idiot. But he's playing on this this narrative, this communal narrative that the media has portrayed. Excuse me, the cathedral has portrayed <laughs> and presented. Last question for you, and I want to get sure. your take on this. Does it bother you that a lot of America firsters perceive academia to be this liberal monolithic element within um, uh, so some of these institutions sure. that people are losing faith and trust in? That's always a cross that we've we've had to bear, and again, I've. Part of my life is just sort of to counter that that stereotype. And not every single one of us are these flaming radical liberal progressives. Uh, we're open to uh, debate, and certain when we're not trying to indoctrinate students who come in to our classrooms. You know, we give them uh, the Trump, the heroic version of American history. That and that's that's what I try and do. And so, yeah, I I know the stereotype is out there, but again, I think. I, I've met people who've heard me on the radio, and they they, they applaud me. They like what I've said. They say, hey, you've, you've changed my opinion. And so that's so that, yeah, that makes me happy. But the majority of the, the – here's the concern that I think a lot of us have. There's there's I mean, obviously, higher education is higher education is higher education. Four-year college is four-year college is four-year college. But not many people, with all due respect, leave Clemson, South Carolina, Coastal, to Francis Marion, and go run the treasury. <laughs> or, or, or chair the um, the Federal Reserve. And the majority of those folks come from about eight or ten, here I go or with air quotes, prestigious sure. universities. Um, and, and I would argue, I mean, I saw the the, uh, the Harvard Crimson did a research on their own faculty. It's overwhelmingly liberal. From the, but I yeah. think people need to understand that when we talk higher education and we talk government officials, the majority of government officials didn't come from Francis Marion, didn't come from Carolina sure. or Clemson. Uh, they came from these... I don't know, uh, elitist academic institutions like Harvard, like Yale, like Princeton, like Stanford, like uh, Dartmouth and UPenn. There is a pecking order in academia. You you want to study Andrew Jackson, you go to the University of Tennessee. But again, the University of Tennessee compared to so many other schools, right? They look down their nose at me. You only went to the University of Tennessee. you, You don't deserve a seat at the table. So yeah, even among academics, right? we certainly have to, we know what it's like. That's interesting. Appreciate yeah. your time. Thank you. Good to be we'll, back. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. 843 661 is our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Here is Paul in the PD. Good morning, Paul. You're on the air. Hey, y'all. Um, I know we've been talking about the cathedral and everything all morning, but I do want to get, Ken, your take on kind of, you know, Nancy Pelosi in Asia and, you know, is, is she going to Taiwan? Is she not? Like, 
why is Joe Biden kind of not saying anything? Where's the leadership with that? And kind of the ramifications if she does go to Taiwan and, you know, what we could see from that. So I'll leave it with that. Thank, Thank you. you. Appreciate that. I think they put John Kirby in a very difficult uh, circumstance or situation. She has to go to Taiwan. And she doesn't need to get China's blessing. I mean, I don't understand this. This is, I mean, this is an administration that is run by surrogates. I mean, it's not a president with a full understanding of what needs to happen, how it needs to happen, where it needs to happen. And I think Pelosi going to Taiwan under such confusing circumstances, and there seems to be a very inconsistent message out of the American government, is a, I mean, it's an evident example of a guy that's just not, I mean, Biden's not up to the job. I got a buddy of mine, big Republican, doesn't like Trump text me yesterday during Biden's address about killing the al-Qaeda leader and said, are you watching this on television? I responded, yes, I am. I'd actually just got home, walked in the house, turned the television on, uh, doing a little show prep. And um, he said, this is, I mean, this is bizarre that, that our president is out of it. I mean, it's obvious they pumped him full of meds or he wasn't taking his meds or it they was had terrible. Him. I mean, it, it was, it was bizarre, Rev. His, I mean, it, the teleprompter says that elitism means a select group that is superior in terms of ability or qualities to the rest of a group or society. I mean, what sort of message does that send to the other global powers? Weakness. Uh, no question. Not incompetence. Just, but it's incompetence and incoherence. And so, so I think Pelosi going to Taiwan has become such a, a cluster you-know-what because the president of the United States is not in charge. And I think that's what you get when you elect somebody that is an obvious cognitive decline. Here we go with the talking radio or talk radio talking points. You know, I mean, the guy's in obvious cognitive decline. He's a shadow of his former self. And the White House cannot come up with a coherent message because the president and the boss. And if you've got acolytes and surrogates running, uh, so, you know, some sort of um, underlings running and messaging out of the White House, it gets real confusing. And I, I think China... Uh, you know, somebody says about, you know, shooting down Pelosi's aircraft. I mean, I don't imagine China's interested in disposing of one of their best assets. Uh, <laughs> why would you do that? I mean, Pelosi probably is a friendly to China more than she is the working class of America. Um, she's probably gotten more favor and then give more favor in return. She, uh, he and her wife, typical of what the Bidens and, and all really the political cronies in Washington do. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think... Uh, you know, we should say that China is a is a nation separate of, excuse me, Taiwan's a nation separate of China. John Kirby has put in an almost impossible situation because he goes out and speaks on behalf of the administration. And I think they're muddled messages out of the administration. And I think Pelosi, as Speaker of the House, has to go to Taiwan because if she doesn't, it seems like China is directing foreign policy uh, in, in American interest at heart. And that's just a bizarre place that we find ourselves, but once again, the fundamental of this problem is electing a leader who has never in his political life exhibited sound leadership qualities. That's the issue. You know, Pelosi going to Taiwan, Pelosi taking off from China, uh, Pelosi, where does she land in Taiwan? All of these are intricacies and nuances, and none of these are paid close attention to if we have a president in charge. If the president of the United States had his faculties and was in charge of the messaging out of the White House, he would have addressed this in a nanosecond. And he would have said firmly, clearly, and succinctly, you know, the speaker is 
in Taiwan represented the United States of America. How many times have you heard this? It's a little bit, I mean, uh, is she going? She's kind of going. Where's she going to land? I don't uh, Is she going to say? I don't know. She may say that, but she probably Weak. won't say this. What does China think? I mean, I wonder what Xi thinks about. Who gives a rat's rear end what Xi thinks? We're the United States of America. We're the preeminent superpower on this planet. And if we want to send our speaker to China, we send our speaker to China. If we want to send our speaker to Taiwan, we send our speaker to Taiwan. We are the superpower that everybody has to deal with until now. And we're, we're displaying not just weakness and, and uh, confusion, uh, incoherence, incompetence. And, and you don't think Russia senses that? You don't think China senses that? You don't think geopolitical adversaries in the Middle East sense that we have um, indecision? And, uh, I mean, it's, it's kind of the perfect storm for the Obama acolytes. They get to call the shots and blame Biden. I mean, they've got a stooge. Wow. They've got a stooge in the White House. You talked a second ago about uh, is the, is, is, uh, what did, um, uh, who was it called a second ago? Uh, was it Paul who said, is he the useful idiot? Or Bob? Bob, Bob, am I the useful idiot? Um, Biden is the useful idiot. I mean, there, there is no doubt about it. And it's hard to be angry with Biden because if, you, if you're like me, you don't believe he understands exactly what it is he's doing. I mean, yesterday it was so obvious how out of it he was as he labored through reading what Obama acolytes had put on a teleprompter for him to read. But I think the muddled message, once again, American incompetence. Back in a minute. Seven is our number. Who's that? The Foo Fighters? That's Foo Fighters. Learn to fly. Yeah, they have some pretty unpleasant things to say about the America First movement, mm, if I'm not mistaken. Well, they would. So Rev is distraught. I mean, Rev is perplexed. Rev is confused. I, I think his feelings may be a little bit hurt. Well, Am I, was, I right? Well, and I had a, I had this thought a little bit before Bob called. But Can I stop of, you there? Can I stop you there before I... Because you told me this morning, before the show started... He said, I actually went plundering around the internet last night to see what I could find out about these cathedralists <laughs> mm-hmm. that you're talking about. Yep. But you said you couldn't find out didn't much. didn't find much at all. Very stealthy in their operations. That was my observation. Continue. I'm sorry. So you go back to Bob's call. <laughs> yeah, go back to Bob's call. And, and I thought this a little bit yesterday when you were filling me in on what you had learned. And I've always believed that the America First, the Trump movement as part of that, 
was organic. You know, it's it's those of us that were kind of fed up, feeling like the government is not looking out for our interest, and we've got to do something about that. But to hear you describe from your research, you could argue that we, Trump voters, America First voters or whatever, may be used as, I don't know, as pawns in this game a little bit. So that, I mean, it, I mean, am I, am I perceiving this totally wrong? Well, but I think you could perceive it that I way. I mean, they need us. I believe that sometime in the mid-2000s, and I'm talking about the mid-2010s, 2005, 6, 7, so the mid-2000s, before, prior to 2010, I think there was a an energy among um, so some of the young internet sensations. I'm talking about the bloggers. Really and truly, they morphed into the dark enlighteners. But yeah, I mean, I, I believe that at some point in time, when when these young Silicon Valley disruptors began growing up, becoming mature adults, they began to sense how confining the government was. Silicon Valley is what? It's a celebration of entrepreneurship, right? I mean, we've seen innovation galore come out of Silicon Valley. Technology, the breakthroughs, um, the way it's changed our world. Um, Cupertino and Apple and... Um, I mean, our, our lives are fundamentally different today as a result of this. So I think that at some point in time in the mid-2000s, I don't say a movement was created, but people began forming these opinions as they became adults. They didn't like government much. I mean, they had this libertarian bias about them. Uh, Peter Thiel was probably, a, uh, these would probably be some of the disciples of Thiel, the disciples of Musk. Um, the disciples of, what's the guy, Larry Ellison at Oracle? You know, some of these guys who had made a name for themselves and sold businesses or invented businesses, created businesses. Bill Gates would be another. Um, but so, so, yeah, I think there was an energy there that was under the radar, um, very limited in, in, in where their footprint was. And, and I think it... Uh, I don't think it created the Trump phenomenon, but I think it it it, it agreed that once it happens, we need to be ready. I mean, and did they hitch on to us and saw there was I think something we hitched out on here to one another. that was boiling? I think we hitched on to okay. one another. All right. I think we hitched on to one yeah. another. Um, I don't think— And see, you, I'm okay with that. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think these guys and gals, there are a few ladies, not many. The majority are white, sketchy men. <laughs> white, smart, <laughs> sketchy men. I mean, in all honesty, I mean, that's who these people are, that they're white— they're smart. They're sketchy. Um, they're they're very very aggressive in saying what they believe. Um, they're very edgy in their in their lives and dispositions. But yes, I mean I think that they saw government. I think they were the ones. We didn't coin the phrase cathedral. I mean we said the game is rigged, drain the swamp. We believed that government was working in concert for some and against others. I mean, I think the majority of Americans who call themselves America Firsters, if you said, hey, write in a sentence on this sheet of paper why you're an American Firster, they would say the government works for certain moneyed interest at the expense of those that don't have any money. And I think that is an absolute fair articulation and explanation of where we are and how we, and how we got there. These guys had already decided. I mean, I think these sketchy, edgy, smart white men had already decided that something had to be done. Something needed to be done. You can't let the the establishment be the guardians 
uh, of what speech is acceptable, what behavior is acceptable. We can't question the vaccine. I mean, imagine that. We live in a country where if you had an alternate opinion of the vaccine works, you just weren't allowed to participate. You didn't have a seat at the table. Nobody was going to let you say what what needed to be said in opposition to whether or not the vaccine works. Um, climate change. Let's even get more, uh, let's get hit home more closer, or let's hit closer to home than that. The 2020 election, anybody that had an opinion that the 2020 election, the majority of these dark enlighteners, you know what, they, 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 they know something happened. You know how they know? Because Zuckerberg's one of them. I mean, they kind of in a weird way admire what he did. I mean, Zuckerberg would be one of these guys. I mean, he you know, started a company, made billions and billions of dollars, became politically active. Um, he's more mainstream because he's got shareholders. You know what I mean? He's got an obligation, responsibility to Wall Street. Uh, the majority of these folks, you know where, the, I would say five of every 10 of these dark enlighteners, you know where they made their money? In crypto. I mean, the majority bought Bitcoin or, or Celsius or one of these other Ethereum or whatever, you know, uh, the, the cryptocurrency of your choice, whatever uh, one you invested in when it was 10 cent per and now it's, you know, $1,000 or $100,000 or 75, whatever that number is. And the majority made several million dollars on cryptocurrency. Um, but, but no, I don't think they look at you or me or Bob or anybody else as useful idiots. They see us as complimentary to the cause. There, there aren't enough of them to win. There aren't enough of us to win. We need one another. Now, here's the interesting part of the politics of this. Where, where have the Republicans lost tremendous ground? With young voters. The, the Mike Pence, Mitt Romney, uh, Mitch McConnell's of the world just don't interest young people. I mean, they find them to be very boring and predictable. But all of a sudden... I mean, young people, by their nature, probably want to be more anti-establishment than pro-establishment, right? I mean, as, as a young person, don't you want to kind of be a part of something revolutionary than going along and getting along? So all of a sudden, you're starting to read about, you know, a 35-year-old man, a 31-year-old woman, a 29-year-old um, graduate from Stanford. All of a sudden, they're reading some of these things. They don't know what they've got in common with that football arena full of hayseeds that said, you know, make America great again. Why do they believe that? Because that's what the kind of the media has told you they are. They're a bunch of angry white people that want America to be back in the days of slavery. That's absurd. I mean, the absurdity of that. But, but once again, the cathedral gets to make the rules. Nobody gets to compete with what they believe. It, it, is, a, it is a monolith, and it moves as one. So if the monolith says that Trump supporters are racist, who confronts that? Who disputes that? Nobody gets to, except these folks in the dark web, these folks in the corners of the internet that have garnered audiences. Um, here's what needs to happen. You ready? Here's what needs to happen. Curtis Yarvin needs to be on Joe Rogan's podcast, and Yarvin needs to say something. You can't play Yarvin. I'd love to play Yarvin on the radio, but he drops the F-bomb about every third word. <laughs> I mean, I'm serious. I mean, you know, the I'm telling you, there's an edginess about the way these guys yeah. say things. Um, and you, I mean, rep, it, we'd have to. And it's not, it's not many cuss words. It's just one over and over and over again. <laughs> Instead of taking breaths, oh, I he mean, drops it, an f bomb. That's right. That's right. I mean, it's been two minutes since I said an f bomb, so it's time for another. Uh, whether I need to say it or not, I got to, I got to get that in there. Um, and I, you know, it's just, it's, it's kind of a language of. Uh, of that culture, that generation. Uh, you can't say it on the radio, so we're not going to, to go there. 
but um i may do this today i, I tend to do it yesterday and didn't um i've got a i've got a kind of an article here um called i want to make sure i get this right um it's basically it's basically explaining in layman's terms or as layman as we can do uh, a brief explanation of the cathedral i may put that on my facebook page today um and let you go there i mean obviously how many of you are interested in reading 13 pages See, that's the problem here. This takes a certain dedication, a certain enthusiasm, a certain commitment that I'm not sure. We love to complain. We love to whine and cry and, uh, you know, I don't think we say that word, uh, moan and groan and, you know, say our piece about what's wrong in the world. But but are we equipped to make a difference? Um, once again, if you believe that the cathedral's real, if you believe that um, – that some force other than fairness dictates who's allowed to speak and who's not allowed to speak. Um, the guardians, I mean, I wrote it down in my words, guardians of what is acceptable discourse. Uh, you know, you can't question climate change. You can't question the vaccine. You can't question the 2020 election. Why? Because the cathedrals made their mind up that this is what needs to happen on climate change. This is what needs to be the narrative on the 2020 presidential election. You know why a lot of people believe the election was stolen? Because we've never had a debate about whether or not it was. And I've heard this, you know, this many courts decided, that many judges decided. There's been no information presented. I mean, we've never had a debate about what happened. I mean, has anybody ever answered a question about the $450 million that Mark Zuckerberg spent on the 2020 election? Nobody's ever said, hey, Mark, why did you spend that money? Hey, election commissioner, what did you do with that money? I mean, nobody's ever answered that question. Why? Because the cathedral said that's not up for debate. So if you've got a monolith controlling and, and guarding what, what the bounds of conversation are allowed to be or not, but, but the thing we've got to do, Rev, and I think you're trying and I'm trying, and a lot of our listeners are trying, we've got to, do we believe in it? How do you know if you believe in something or not if you don't understand it? All I'd ask you to do is take... Um, six hours of your time and <laughs> and, read, and read what I put online about this um, brief explanation to cathedral. An oligarchy inherently converges on ideas that justify the use of power. They believe they're doing God's work. The cathedral believes that us left to our own volitions is more dangerous than them you know, being the guardians, but being the um, the, the controllers of conversation. Hey, don't let that. Uh, you can't let this happen. Make sure that happens. It's almost like playing a ball game. The Mets and Braves will play in a five-game series, a critically important series for the Braves. What if what if we decided at twelve o'clock that the game had to end up seven-five Braves? We got the back end of that score. So how do we get there? Well, I mean, you know, Riley hits home run. And, okay, that's one run. And then Dansby gets on second. So you see where I'm headed? That's the nature of American politics today. The game has already been played. The outcome has already been decided. How do we get there? How do we get to a 7-5 Braves win when the game has not even been played yet? That's the argument. But, but what we've got to do is dedicate ourselves. If you're an America First voter and you want to know, um, okay, Ard says there's some intellectual underpinning. I don't know if I believe him or not, but I'm willing to go down that road. I mean, I'm willing to understand or not if there's some substance here because I don't think there is. I mean, I think it's a bunch of angry white people that showed up in the basketball arena 
and and some guy who loves people yelling his name. See, that's what the media's told us has happened. And there's enough of these folks who believe the country has left them behind that they just raise hell in such a way that they won an election. But but ultimately, it'll go away. It's a fit of rage, a brush fire. Um, we'll deal with it, and then we'll move on. But but if this is true, and if and if we believe, and as I do, that that the only way to win is to tear down some of the systems of authority, and I'm talking about tear them down. I'm not talking about replace this person with that person. I'm talking about obliterate how the institutions operate. Now, Larry made a very interesting point this morning. There's nothing wrong with the institutions. I mean, if the FBI had competent, honest, smart people who didn't show political bias or favor, the FBI would work. The CIA would work. The Department of Justice would work. The Federal Treasury would work. The Federal Reserve would work. Congress would work. If people were there altruistically and sincerely doing their job, we wouldn't have this debate. But these folks and yours truly have decided that that's just not going to happen. And, and Rev and I had this kind of a, um, an, an illustrative example. I've got the, the match. Rev's got the fuse. I've already got the match lit. Rev says, whoa, dude, I mean, you can't light that fuse yet. What the hell are we going to do when you do light it? I mean, where are we running to? What are we replacing it with? And and I think the one of the fundamental questions, I mean, we've I think we America firsters, I just say we Americans, we America firsters have agreed we don't like the captain of the ship. But do we want the sailors drive the ship? Or do we want to find another captain? So so now we got to find another captain. And I'm talking about metaphorically. I mean, it's not just a captain, it's a hundred thousand captains in all these government agencies and all these media outlets and all these institutions of higher learning, we got to put fair-minded people there. we got to put people that aren't on the tape. Honest brokers. Honest brokers. you got to have honest brokers in the CNN newsroom, honest brokers at the New York Times, honest brokers as college professors, honest brokers running the DOJ, honest brokers running the FBI. That's the argument they're making. And they say the cathedral is one in the same. So I'm going to put this online. This was in January of 2021, and I think it does a good job of explaining. Now, we can go a lot further down this road, uh, but this is about, you know, um, six million words uh, as a brief explanation because it's complicated, guys. But but I, I want you to understand the majority of you are a part of a political movement. You need to understand the intellectual underpinning that I think anchors this political movement. Let's go to the phone. Here's Breeze. Morning. Hey, guys. Uh, Ken, I think this has been going on for centuries in one way or another. But how did the cathedral take over academics? They put their people in it. I'll use the word cathedral because it's convenient. How did the cathedral take over um, the government? They put their people in it. How did they take over the media? They put their people in it. Now, another huge obstacle, and that's the biggest obstacle of all, and I, is religion and the churches. I think the, the cathedral, again, using that term, I think they have put their operatives, and I believe that there has been a concerted effort for a long, long time to destroy religion and get us further away from God, and it has been purposeful, and I believe there are traitors involved in religion and the church, just like they are in academia and these other things. We're leaving God out of this. And if you look back at um, George Washington, and you, know, and you look at some of the stuff he said, one of the things he warned about was political parties. 
and political parties putting their self-interest in front of the people. And another thing you hear talk about was for a, for a republic to work, that means that the government is, that it is run by the people, for the people. For that to work, you have to have virtuous, moral men. And George Washington said, and that means you have to have religion. So none of this stuff is going to work that we're talking about without virtuous, moral men. And where do you get virtue and morality from? Religion and God. So as long as they have got the country to where they really, they may say they are, but how are they really Christian? Do they really believe in God? So as long as we don't have God involved in this, as long as we have a bunch of secular intellectuals, then we're always going to have this problem. And that, it may sound simple, but what would cure all of this would be virtuous and moral men that believed in God and followed the Bible. Instead, these people think that there's no heaven, there's no hell, and so their only time, their only time is this time on earth, and they are thinking beyond their 70 or 80 or 90 years of life. And so we'll never get this squared away until we get religion and the church squared away. And what has happened is, is a lot of people got to the point where they trusted religion less and got religion less than they trusted the government. And so that's where you, that's what, I think that was one of the biggest problems. People got to where the government became the good guy, even the king or the queen, the monarchy became the good guy over the church because the church in Europe had all was so corrupted, and you still see it here in America. And so until you get the corruption out of the church and get honest, honest, moral, and virtuous people running the churches and preaching from the pulpit, preaching from the Bible instead of feel-good stories from the pulpit, they rest with, they we're going to always have this problem in America. I say, you ought to go to a church one time that has 25 people in it instead of over two or 3,000, and then you start getting an idea about what, what it really is all about. But it goes back to morals and virtues, and I believe this has been going on for hundreds of years. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. That may be one of Breeze's best calls ever, and he's had a lot of good ones. He said something that I've thought a lot about. You know what scares me about these uh, the, these, these uh, edgy, crafty, smart, disruptive, dangerous people? By and large, they're secular intellectuals. I mean, not, not to a person, because there's some that talk a little bit about their faith. Um, you know, there's an old argument. There are no atheists. There's some just say they don't believe in God. You know, in their private mind, I don't, I don't have any idea. I'm not being judgmental of atheism. That's not my place. I mean, I believe in God. I believe in the gospel. I believe that morality and virtue do derive from a belief in a supernatural power. God in heaven is where I get mine. But, but Breeze nailed it. I mean, we talked about do we trust these people or not? Do they trust us or not? I don't know. The one thing that makes me skeptical is the high percentage of these people that we need. I mean, we need them. And I'm trying to introduce you to them. We need these folks on our team. They need us on their team. The majority of these people are secular intellectuals, and they profess that. They, they don't have a belief in God. Their value system is not predicated on morality or virtue derived from a religious belief or a um, kind of a God-inspired vision or understanding of the universe of which we all live in. Um, and that's, you know, but, but you take what you can get, right? 
I mean, I hate to use Springsteen around here, baby. You get what you can get. Mm. And I think, you know, it, it may, we may be forced to engage at that level, the secular intellectual that I think believes in what we believe in when it comes to government right now at this moment in time, as much as we do take a break back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. Let's go to the phone. A couple of callers are there. David in the PD. Morning, David. Hey, how y'all doing this morning? Uh, you know, Thomas Jefferson had a simple term for it. He called it creator. Going back to Breeze's call. Uh, whenever you talk about Nancy Pelosi, I don't know why. I think about Dr. Thigpen. And remember what, what hey, Ken, what did Dr. Thigpen call Nancy Pelosi? Little Nancy. Little Nancy. Little Nancy. Uh, that's because her daddy was the mayor. I think her brother was the mayor. So then took that road show from Baltimore to Silicon Valley and then taken it to China today. Uh, and I think Dr. Thickpen, wasn't he? He knew Steny Hoyer. So Dr. Thickpen, he knows. He knows. The man knows what's going on and all this kind of stuff. Uh, going back to Dr. Bolt, did Dr. Bolt say that Andrew Jackson could not talk without cussing? I think he said that for entertainment purposes. I mean, I would imagine Jackson could carry on a conversation, but he was very colorful as LBJ was. Well, my whole thing is that there's a, there's a debate on if Andrew Jackson's from South Carolina or North Carolina, but if he couldn't talk without cussing, he might be from New Jersey. <laughs> so and can I say this to Mike, Mike, welcome to South Carolina, brother. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that, you know, David. It, it, thank you. 843-661-0937. Got Wayne Mulling in with us. We'll get to Wayne in two seconds. Let's go to our next caller. Up next is Bert in Florence. Good morning, Bert. You know, I like listening to Breeze, and you know I love this show. But y'all about to give me a headache over this idea that the world was just immoral and we just had no morality whatsoever until Jesus came along, because that is not the case. You know, that's like saying the Wild West was nothing but just everybody gunslinging and killing each other till I don't know, modern cops or something. That's just ridiculous. You know, the church and the, the killing in the name of the church has outnumbered anything that ever killed anything. God is, is the reason for murdering everything. You want to see a country that's run by the church? Go to the Middle East. There, there is where God runs everything. So we need to stop talking about we got to get back to God and start talking about we got to get back to the Constitution that lets God be your personal thing. Every time y'all have somebody that does that, it just gives me a headache because they clearly didn't read the Constitution. Morality does not come from the God of Abraham. So have a good day. Thank you, Bert. Appreciate it. I mean, Bert's talking about, I mean, in the Middle East, it's a theocracy. I mean, it is a... um a government by divine guidance, um, that divine guidance being, in that case, Allah and the Muslim religion. Um, I don't know that Bree said Jesus. I think he said religion is where you find your morals and virtue. I mean, uh, where do you find, if you don't find your morals and virtue in some higher power, where do you? What human being do we trust to say this is moral or this is virtuous, this is immoral, and this is not virtuous? I mean, I, I would lay that out there. I mean, I'm serious. I mean, if, you, if you're somebody who doesn't believe in a God and you're an atheist 
I don't believe there are any atheists. I just think there's people like like calling themselves atheists. But if you are an atheist and you don't believe in God, where do you get a definition of morality? Where do you get a sense of what is moral, what is immoral, what is virtuous, what is um, what is not virtuous? I, I think that's another interesting hour-long segment that we could do on the radio. Um, I know where I get mine, and Bert's exactly right. I mean, I've always interpreted uh, my matter of faith as personal. I get my definition of morality from the gospel of Jesus. I get my definition of virtue from my understanding of the Old and New Testament of the Holy Bible. I've never said you have to. That's where I get mine. And to me, it's hard to get it anywhere other than there because I just think everything else is is very humanistic in nature. Uh, Wayne Mully, you're going to get me in trouble talking about religion <laughs> and God and all these other sorts of things. Wayne is with us this morning. Wayne is, um, help me with the title. He's the boss man as far as I'm concerned. He is vice president and general manager. Yeah, there, there you go, vice president and general manager. I like you to do the brown nosing because you're here a lot more I than I am. I so, so you have to do that. But we're having a career fair. Not a job fair, but a career fair. We have had an unbelievable level of participation with businesses. Businesses are looking for employees. We need to do all we can to inform you, our listenership, where you can go if you're looking for a different or new career. Wayne, am I right? Exactly right. So this is not just for unemployed, but for people that maybe are underemployed and they're not able to make ends meet. You have a tremendous opportunity here on this day, tomorrow, Wednesday, the 3rd, from 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. to meet up with a number of large established businesses that are hiring full-time people and are hiring on the spot. We have more businesses this time than any of the other two career fairs we've done. We will have 40 businesses in Florence at the Staybridge Suites, and Staybridge Suites is just right over there behind the move, behind the Small Fox Theater. Yeah, the theater year. behind uh, Holiday Inn, right there all yep. down from the Florence Center, Staybridge Suites. Uh, in Sumter, it will be at uh, the Sumter Civic Center, easy to find. And in Orangeburg, all of these three places, same time, will be at the cinema in Orangeburg. 40 businesses in Florence. We have over 60 businesses in Sumter that will be at the Sumter uh, Career Fair and 25 in Orangeburg. Largest turnout we've ever had. And what we need is for you out there, as Wayne said, who yes. you may not like your job, you may want to change, uh, you may feel like there's another opportunity that waits you, that pays you better. We've done a good job of getting these businesses in a centralized location. You owe it to yourself yep, as someone who's trying to improve their lot in life to come by and visit and um and th- that's from eleven Wayne if I'm not mistaken eleven to three eleven to three it's in yep. all of our are all of our markets um they can go to CarolinaCareerFair.com don't need a ticket don't need to no. call anybody just directions show up. are there Ken we've even done something different this time we've actually listed all of the businesses that will be in all three locations so where can they see this list so they can go to CarolinaCareerFair.com and see the list of businesses in Florence they can go to CBSumter.com and see all of the businesses in Sumter and CB, CB as in community broadcaster, CBOrangeburg.com, and they can see all the businesses in Orangeburg. And that's tomorrow. Yep. From 11 to 3. Yes. No ticket, no notification. You don't need to sign up or do. It ain't like buying Springsteen tickets. <laughs> oh, that's It doesn't sure. take an act of Congress. Just show up once again. If you're out there listening and, and you just, you know, you think it's worth your time to go see if there's a better opportunity around yes. the corner. Some of the best employers in this area you bet. are going to be with you. You bet. 
Absolutely. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you, guys. Wayne Mulling, our boss man. Vice President and general manager. Yeah, I like boss man better. <laughs> Riff says I've got a... Sounds better. Yeah, I've got, a, I've got an easier way <laughs> of saying certain things. Do you have a call? Uh, no. Okay, I, I want to do something real quick before we leave here. Because mm-hmm. I think you meant it as an insult. <laughs> I didn't take it as an insult, but I think you intended it to be insult. Um, because we're talking about these intellects, these, these secular intellectuals mm-hmm. that... that um, that we're all of a sudden finding out. See, what Rev has found out, Rev believed that, you know, Trumpism was organic. It just showed up in the night. You know, the Trump energy, the Trump phenomenon. And what he's beginning to believe is, no, there were people plowing the field years ago right. preparing <laughs> for the eventuality and, and, of this. And I think the organic part was there was an organic desire amongst voters who felt like they weren't getting what they should get from their government. Their government wasn't looking out for their interests. And I, and I thought that Trump tapped into that. He identified it as a, uh, as, as a way to win, basically, and achieve uh, whatever he was trying to achieve. But I thought at least that part of it was organic. What, you're, what you don't want to be true is for these, uh, the, the Yarkins and Teals and Masters and Vances of the world, you don't want them to believe, or you don't want them to sit around one day drinking one of their IPAs and, and saying, we tricked them. Right. I mean, there weren't enough, you know, we, all of a sudden we're in charge. That was always the intent. We didn't want McConnell and Schumer and Pelosi to be in charge. We wanted Vance and Teal and, and Masters and give me another, um, Tucker. I mean, Tucker's an America firster. No question about it. We wanted these people to be in charge and we couldn't do it until Trump convinced some of these yahoos that he was right. sincere um, and, and kind of played upon their emotions. I don't think that's the case. Well, I hope not. I mean, I, I, I really don't. I mean, I think they understand, and I think I think we're beginning to understand. Here, here's, the here's I think, the, the, the perplexing point that you have. Um, you didn't know about these people until a couple of days ago when we started discussing. That's true. Um, you know, you mean to tell me, because I printed an article a second ago, got revved to print it off, and the first thing he said is, that article's in 2007. <laughs> I didn't say it exactly I mean, like yeah, that. You didn't. You didn't. <laughs> that, that article's in 2007. It's on uh, Mitchus Moldberg. Uh, excuse me, Moldbug. I mean, that's Curtis Yarvin. I mean, that's his other that's, name that's that he goes alias. under. Yes, or Yarvin's alias. And he wrote some of that because if he wrote it as Yarvin, Google would, uh, you know, they, they wouldn't let his articles be searched as effectively as they probably could have been. So he came up with Mitchus Moldbug. I mean, since he's been found out, is I mean, it's probably three or four years when everybody's trying to figure out who is Mitchus Moldbug. Um, this is kind of an underground movement. I mean, it, it's very much an underground movement, but um, the crux of the argument and, and the sentiments of those people are very similar to the crux of our argument and the sentiments of our people. I mean, I'm not saying it's their people and our people, but in a weird way it is. I mean, the, the, these shadowy figures, these aggressive, edgy, sketchy white men, by and large, who, um, who blog and post and podcast on the, um, ah, the cathedral, as they call it. I think Breeze is right. It's kind of an easy way to describe all these things we're trying to describe. The cathedral is the deep state. The deep state is the cathedral. The Catholic Church is one institution. The cathedral is hundreds of institutions but they work in concert probably better today than the catholic church does as one institutions take a break we'll be back in just a minute i looked on 538 this morning nate silver's site he has the republicans 83 percent chance of winning the house 44 percent chance of winning the senate a lot of that will take place today in missouri with um eric greitens 
and Eric Schmidt. Donald Trump endorsed Eric. Um, <laughs> and they both thanked him. <laughs> yeah, they both thanked him for the uh, for the endorsement. Uh, the majority of mainstream media believes it was Greitens because Greiton is the, uh, I mean, it's kind of interesting. Nobody knows he's a Rhodes Scholar and a Navy SEAL. Everybody knows he has a scandal. Everybody in politics knows he has a scandal. Um, my source says that Greitens is the only one that could potentially lose Missouri. Missouri is not a purple state. It's a red state, but it ain't so red that you can't goof it up. I mean, it's not Wyoming. It's not South Carolina. You can goof up Missouri if you aren't careful. Um, and I think Schmidt gives the better chance. The interesting part of Missouri is I don't know of another race that's uh, Teal and Trump have been on opposite teams, but I think Teal is endorsed. I don't think he's given any money, uh, the normal contributions, but I think he's endorsed Schmidt and Trump endorsed Eric. Um, I'll let you decide whether it's Schmidt or, or Greitens. Now, the media's taking it back. How juvenile is that? How crazy and nonchalant is it for a former president to throw his endorsement around in such a way? But, I mean, that's the one against the cathedral. You know, don't listen to what the cathedral says. They, um, they are the guardians of what is um, responsible or acceptable discourse. The other race that I'm so intrigued in is Blake Masters and I think Jim Lamon in, um, in Arizona. Masters appears to be, after the Trump endorsement, kind of separating himself from the field. But anything, uh, it's a primary. I mean, nobody knows what will happen. Masters, if you'll remember, is the candidate that introduced himself to the voters of Arizona by saying the 2020 election the 20, uh, was stolen. I about said 16. The 2020 election was stolen, and I thought he'd made a fatal mistake. I mean, I just, I'll never forget the, the, the moment I heard that ad. I'm going, who told him that's okay? I called my friend Robert Cahaley, our friend Robert Cahaley, and he said, I get it man i mean if you're in south carolina you don't say it but in arizona everybody had a family member or a friend or an acquaintance who somebody voted for them or their vote was contested or something didn't add up about the vote arizona pennsylvania georgia um and wisconsin were the four states most in question when it comes to absentee balloting and early balloting and all the ballot harvesting and drop boxes and all these other sorts of things um astronaut mark kelly i heard masters last night say you can ask mark kelly about this bill or that bill or the other bill his standard answer is i'm an astronaut you know i'm an astronaut <laughs> and he and he actually sounded a little bit like steve spurrier when he said it and, and blake masters just doesn't look nor sound like steve spurrier but he said i'm an astronaut <laughs> what, what, what do you think of that bill that um the schumer's trying to get into that i'm an astronaut um, what do you think of um, the situation in Taiwan and China? I, I'm an astronaut. I, I don't. I'm an astronaut. I just, you know, don't vote <laughs> oh, against an astronaut. Good. Yeah, who's going to vote against an astronaut? But um, but Masters, in my humble opinion, or not so humble opinion, is the most America first candidate. The most um, the convergence of America first and the dark enlighteners as anybody we've seen. And my ambition, my goal in life, is to live long enough to watch. 20 Blake Masters be members of the U.S. Senate. I mean, if we've got 20 people like Blake Masters in the Senate, we got a fighting chance. I mean, we've got a fighting chance of overturning or throwing away or disposing of the cathedral, which has been kind of two shows back to back about one single issue that we still don't fully understand. Take a break. Back in a minute. 